You make me happy. The grossest thing I ate. Ugh, it was in the back of a minivan. Got a flashlight delivered here. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fight Words Eye podcast. I'll be your host today, Will Atkinson. I'm joined by co-hosts Adam Howard and Karen Blakely. We have with us, connected by Zoom from Afghanistan, my friend and yours, Charlie Campbell. Charlie, say hi to everyone. Hi. <laughs> what are you? Uh, what are you doing? What are you up to over there? Uh, I am relaxing. I am doing absolutely nothing right now. Thankfully. Charlie was just sharing via Snapchat his fresh cut that he got at the barber there. And truthfully, it's pretty sharp. But what strikes me is how well-connected we are these days. Like, you can do this, and it's not a problem. You know, you can jump on Zoom. You can – we can stay in touch on social media. That's That's got to be wild. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier, especially uh, some of the guys here. Um, two of our team leaders and our squad leader have both had uh, – all three of them have had uh, at least one deployment. And so hearing, especially one of the guys, he, he joined up initially before September 11, like three months before. So hearing his stories and their stories, and then, you know, having to stand in line for phones, and then I get to talk to you guys on this lovely technological wonder is amazing. Yeah, this is cool. This is something we've had to adapt to. Clearly, when we started the podcast, um, you know, we had a nice studio set up. We were bringing people in. Uh, it was definitely more personal, but everybody's adapted really well, just like a lot of other pods out there and a lot of other business at this point. You know, teachers are teaching lessons via technology like this. So people have been super adaptable. It's awesome. I think it highlights, it kind of gave us the idea that we should probably reach out to folks like you that are over, you know, in a combat deployment and figure out, you know, what's going on. What, what's the boots in the ground perspective? Dude, I thought Will was referencing getting a haircut because you can't get a haircut right now because of COVID. Yeah, that's the truth. I'm suffering. <laughs> I need I need some I need some kind of management here. But uh, are you in some kind of stood down orientation over there due to COVID nineteen, Charlie? Or yeah, how um, how's that disrupted your operations? Yeah. Um. So apparently, the U.S. military is more afraid of. COVID than they are of the Taliban, which strikes me as very odd. But um, we haven't really been able to do much recently. So since all that kicked off, so it's, uh, I don't want to say it's been boring because then it's not going to be boring. I'm going to jinx myself, but it's been boring. Okay, knock on wood, everyone. That's great. Uh, <laughs> I think the Taliban and like is tuning into their TV and be like, oh shit, we better shut down too. I assume so. I mean, they, you know, I've seen piles of shit next to, like right next to where they sell bread. So I'm sure they're very concerned about COVID. And COVID actually has a potential for fecal shedding, I believe. So like the old one hand washing the butthole in the middle of a field, that's uh, probably not going to play too well with COVID. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. See, that makes me proud to be an American. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you can still I mean, do it if you want to. I mean, 
I suppose. Without a TP. Yeah, you guys raised some interesting points along with your disgusting musings, but uh, <laughs> there sure is a lot of like misinformation and just like the amount of coverage and stuff on COVID is overwhelming. It's wild to think about how other countries, especially like lesser developed countries are coping with this. I mean, I've, I've definitely been encouraged by some of the good news lately that, like, you know, infection rates are dropping in China and Northern Italy and, and you know, South Korea is, like, almost certainly turned its corner. You know, we still have a couple weeks of, of uh, precautions at a minimum here in the States. Yeah, South Korea was on top of it, like, right away. Like, they, they didn't hesitate at all. And then... You know, everybody else kind of dragged their feet a little bit. I think I read like an article that Sweden was trying to uh, get the whole herd immunity thing going. So they haven't really like shut anything down, which is weird. It's either Sweden or Denmark. I can't remember which one. Yeah, I think it's Sweden because they were talking about how unless you were elderly or high risk, then you just go about your life as normal. Um, so it's almost like they're doing an experiment for the rest of the globe to see how that works out. Go Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do <laughs> you do you sweden i don't know <laughs> certainly there's a lot of variability out there and people are definitely they're definitely preparing and coping in different ways you know um it's it's nice to know that some folks are pretty comfortable ensconced on extra vacation with their families mm -hmm. um wow like i don't know some of us are losing our minds Dude, i wonder how many babies are going to be born in nine months it's gonna be like a spike in births that's, sure. that's yeah that's uh that's something that's been forecasted and projected a little bit i think it'll be interesting for all you guys deployed to come home and nine months from now greet some new baby right <laughs> this is your covid lockdown baby congratulations like i yeah. was Woo! out of the country jody's doing work god jody's ass better be locked down too i hope god bless jody Ugh. got a lot of work to do a lot of people yeah. keep happy do you think we should? I actually heard uh, an NPR program about Jody and the origins of Jody. Jody is the awesome, amazing dude who fucks your lady back home while you're gone and takes care of her. That is Jody. It's funny how much that correlates to Will's problem. There's also the opposite wounds. sex version of that. Thank you. <laughs> is it still Jody? It's still Jody. No, I can't be. Yes, it's definitely still Jody. Yeah, so that's the nice thing about Jody is they come in male and female versions. Those Dependa husbands are looking for their Jody too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, somebody's got to keep the lube order going, right? Like uh, Will talked about getting back from deployment and his car's seals rotted. You don't want that to happen. Yeah, the, not, to, not to your car, not to your wife, nothing. Got to keep those seals tight is what I'm hearing, Adam. Hey, maybe if the guy's nice, he'll cut the grass too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It'd be the best Jody do my housework for me while I'm gone. Yeah. I can see that being a service that only service members would appreciate. Like the wives would be like, why did you, who did you hire to come over here and be you for the year? Just trust like, me. Oh, that's, that's actually my cousin Todd. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, he needs the money right now. So. Yeah. And that way the, the genetics will be pretty much the same. So it's really not going to be an issue. The kid not looking like me. So it's fine. It's all good. <laughs> that's a pretty generous interpretation. How's your family doing back home? <laughs> Guys, staying connected. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, the family's doing good. Um, Was it dad still working? Uh, works for the city of Madison, the police department, and then mom's working from home now. Sister is—I I don't know what she's doing. She's twenty. 
Nine, 20. She's 20. Yeah. Um, just doing 20 year old girl stuff, I guess. I don't know. Then, yeah. So uh, I got another brother active duty in somewhere in California. I can't remember where. I think he's at, uh, I can't remember the base, but he's, out there. Uh, he's in Air Force. Both of my younger brothers are in Air Force. Or, and then one of them just actually just got out. He was in Turkey for a couple of years. Now he's in Colorado. So, I mean, they're all, they're all hanging out, you know, living life as normal. Mother-in-law has been isolated because she was in her late 60s. So she has been kind of feeling it. But everyone else has just been kind of cruising, normal, adapting, and all that stuff. So nothing, nothing too weird. Well, it definitely sounds like service is a big part of your family's tradition. Is that fair to say that kind of led you to joining up or how did it influence your decisions in that regard? Uh, a little bit. Um, so my dad was active duty Air Force for six years and then uh, had a grandmother's brother died in Vietnam. He was in the army and then two great grandfathers in World War II. So um, definitely a, a history of it, but that's not what led me to it. It was, uh, it was actually a very basic survival reason. Uh, I was circling the tank. I was like, fuck, I'm not going to school and I'm going to drink myself to death. So what do I, what I got to do? How am I going to pay these bills? I was like, oh, Air Force sounds good. Easy. Don't have to really do anything. So I'll go do that. And then you, you like kind of haphazardly walk in and sign up for what I probably understand to be <clears throat> one of the more difficult selections you could make coming into the Air Force. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> It was odd. It was like, all right, I'm going to do my four years, get out, go back to school. Had a scholarship to UW Madison. So I was like, have even more school, go do all that. And then I was, and then I was getting there and I see, you know, all the posters of all like the dudes with the, the four eyed nods and all this other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I want to do some badass stuff like that. Sure. I'll go be a seer specialist. No idea what it was really. So um, I was like 19. So, and I heard it was rough and it was, it was hard. So like yeah, I'll go do that. That sounds cool. Can't be too bad. How did what you uh, pitch you that and and maybe go out build out what Seer is? Uh, so uh, Seer is a Seer instructor. So Seer survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. You know, it's what people do if they get captured or not captured if they're down behind enemy lines or something like that. So a lot of pilots, a lot of you know secret squirrel guys go through and all that stuff like that. Um, so it basically teach you how to survive, right? And then. Um, my recruiter pitched it to me by saying, Hey, this will be really fun. You'll, you're like, you won't be in a lot of danger. You might, I don't really know. It was kind of, kind of tossed in the air. So I was like, all right, that's cool. Sounds fun. It's like, yeah, you get to ride ATVs. You get to go out, learn how to survive in the woods and do all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I want to do that shit. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. And, Sounds like the popular ah, Rambo remake. Right. Rambo becomes a pogue. <laughs> That's awesome, man. They got you. Yeah, yeah, he definitely got me. He, he got me. But um, when I got down there, it wasn't too bad. It was uh, just I realized as I was, like, going through the in-doc process, I was like, this is not what I want to do. Um, so I quit, And which ironically was a very rough decision for me. I was, like, very um, distraught over it because I was like, all right, I normally don't quit things. And so I was like, fuck, this really sucks. So – Especially because like when I, I like all throughout my basic, I, we were in a whole flight full of dudes who were going to do either PJ stuff or Sear stuff. And so, you know, we got talked to all the time, like you guys are 
you guys are going to be like the tip of the spear. You guys are going to be hardcore. You guys are going to die. Like they're like one in three of you are going to die and all this other crazy stuff. So I was like, man, that's going to be rough. Cool. And then we get there and all these like Captain America looking dudes and then like these wiry looking motherfuckers are like, yeah, I don't care. I'm not going to quit. I don't care how rough it is. I'm going to get through it. I'm not going to quit. Right. And so the first day we got the first week we got there, we had like 60 dudes in like the in-doc thing. And within the first two days, half of those guys dropped out and Captain America's dropped out. And then so we got to like week two. I think I was there was like maybe 20. So what kinds of activities are you doing? Here? Oh, dude, it's just a smoke fest. The first. Yeah. So week one is just a, a smoke fest and and people are dropping like flies already. Yeah, like like we're doing like five mile runs at like full sprints and shit like that. The cadre is laughing because they're running backwards while we're struggling to keep up. But you know, like stuff like that, drop push ups, you know, all all that all that's fun stuff. So, um, and what kind of preceded this? <laughs> Nothing. That was, <laughs> so you had gone time. you had gone from like, hey, my life sucks. I'm not doing well. I'm drinking too much. Kind of circling the drain as a civilian to. I need to get a job. I need to join the Air Force. And I understand the Air Force is, sort of has the reputation for being the most competitive service to get on as, as far as the military branches go. And then you went from basic training to this, to straight to SEER school, or what was this? It was like, uh, so like SEER instructor. So uh, in the Air Force, all the all their like SF branches, uh, they go to uh, like an annex of Lackland called uh, Medina. And it's where like CCT, PJs, TACPs, and SEER instructors, or yeah, SEER instructors go to to try to get through. So it's basically like going through the Q course, or yeah, kind of like the Q course, but for SEER. You had gone from like MEPS to basic training to this SEER, this uh, train up environment? Yep. So week one, they're just PT and the dog shit out of you. Yep. That's it. And then, smoking the hell out of us. <laughs> and then pick us up with week two. Week two, so uh, first week, right, we're down to like 20 guys. Week two, it's, it's still kind of the same thing, but halfway through it, they're, they're like, all right, we have a – no, we get through the second week, it's the same stuff all over again. We lose more guys. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm still here. Oh, oh, shit. Okay, I can do this. And then I'm like, I don't really know if I want to, but I'm like, all right, well, you know, we'll see where it goes. And then this is the dumbest reason, but um, – <laughs> They're like, all right, you have a weekend, and it was a long weekend. I think it was like Labor Day or something like that. You have to sew these bags, these watertight bags that we're going to go out to the field with. And it was like these tough leather like material and all this other stuff. And you have to, we had to do the stitching perfectly. They showed us one time, and then like, all right, do it. And if it's not done correctly, we're going to tear it apart, and then you're going to get kicked out. So I'm like, all right, I don't want to get kicked out for not being able to sew correctly. So like, all right, so for about – me and uh, two of the other guys uh, had been in basic with, we spent basically the entire weekend just sewing these bags nonstop. I think it maybe over the course of like 72 hours, I've maybe got like four or five hours of sleep because I was up sewing, just sewing, sewing. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And then I was like, all right, I'm done after this. I quit. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to sew, turn these bags in because I'm not going to be kicked out for sewing. So I'm going to turn these in. Hey, these are good. I quit. I'm done. And ended up doing that, ended up uh, finishing the bags on Tuesday when they came in, um, was it uh, Padre uh, Finley or something like that? 
showed him the bag and said, uh, hey, sir, I quit. And he's like, really? I was like, yes, I quit. Okay. And that was it. And then spent like a month doing bitch work, getting, getting, finding a new job. So, but. How much, how much longer did you have left in that, in that training process, in that environment? I uh, had another week and then had another week after that. So when we, if we finish the bags, right, then they take you out of the field for a week. And that's when they do the whole killing the rabbit, eating it, living out in the woods and all this other stuff. And then after that, then you go to, I think it's somewhere in Washington. Yeah, somewhere in Washington. And that's when like all this, this like the actual Q course aspect of it starts. So, but I, I was, I was like this, like I started learning more about the job while I was there and I was like, this doesn't sound like what I want to do, so. Did you back hold water? I don't, no, they didn't even check it. He just, cause I, I, I gave him the bags. I said, here, I'm, I, I did the bags, I quit. And that was just, it, they didn't. And you just felt so, what, frustrated and just exhausted yeah. mentally, but. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I'd stayed up. I was like, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm not gonna like not, I'm not gonna let the bags be the reason why I fucking quit or get kicked out or whatever. So I'm like, all right, I'll do this. But after that, I'm done. But I was so frustrated because I'm like, I put in all this work, beat up, beat all these Captain America looking motherfuckers. And then I did it for, at the time, I thought for no reason, because I'm like, it's pointless. I'm not doing this anyway. So, but uh, looking back on it, I mean, it was a good experience and def definitely learned a lot about myself. So when was this? This was what year? Uh, 2011, the summer of 2011. Yep. So looking back on that now. Do you feel like that was the right decision or how have you kind of digested, you know, the, that process? Yeah, I, I think uh, where I'm at now definitely was because if I would have kept doing that, that would have been a job I would have been half-heartedly enjoying. Maybe, you know, I mean, there's no way to tell if I would have liked it more. But um, then that led me to kind of the, the medical field because before that I had never thought about being a medic, didn't want anything to do with being, being in the medical field like the first aid stuff that they taught us. I was like, this is stupid. I don't want to ever want to like have to use this. I don't want to know any more than this, ironically. Um, but I mean, you know, after like being 19 and then being told all these, you know, the same bullshit they tell everyone else, which is fine. Like, oh, all you guys might die, blah, 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 which is not true. Um, but being able to actually push myself through it was something that I'd never done, never thought I would was going to be able to do. So, I mean, I mean, it was a good experience. I took a lot from it and never forget something that one of the cadre said, still remember it now, um, muscle failure is not real. It's just you failing. What was that next month kind of being in that hold status like and, and what was the next move for you? Uh, the next month was just uh, doing details. Like we went out to this, um, I don't know what it's, no, what it's called, but it was like a mini, mini uh, Afghan town or something like that, Middle Eastern town. They set up and they like run people through like basic stuff, how to escape and all this other stuff, like contractors and some people, I'm not really sure what they used it for. I didn't really ask too much. They were just like, Hey, we need holes dug and this moved and that moved and this set up. So, I mean, that, that was, that was a pretty good time. I enjoyed that. It was just working out in the sun for like eight hours a day, pretty real easy. So, I mean, wasn't, wasn't too bad. And then, uh, they're like, hey, you got to pick your jobs. All right. So I had like firefighter, fire mechanic, like medic was like my fifth job on my list and I ended up getting that. Then uh, I got shipped off to Fort Sam with another buddy of mine who dropped out as well. And you were and, still uh, in the Air Force at this time? Mm-hmm. Yep. 
So tell me more. You get to Fort Sam as an Air Force medical trainee, and what do you, what happens then? Uh, well, so like over at uh, Medina, right? They treat everyone like adults. They're like, hey, you all signed up for this. You, you know, we're gonna treat you like like you're you're an adult until you prove otherwise. Like our our safety briefings on the weekends were, hey, what are you gonna do? And then we would say, stay the fuck out of trouble. Cool. And he's like, hey, if you go to jail, what happened? Or he says, if you break the law, don't get caught. If it, like you know all that all that stuff, right? So. Um, I get to Fort Sam and I'm wearing like Ranger panties. Like my BCGs were tinted for some reason. I don't know why I had like sunglasses, BCGs. I don't know why. So I was wearing those around with cut off t-shirt, flip flops and uh, Ranger panties and got smoked at Fort Sam on my first day for that. Yeah. One of the sergeants. Deservedly so. Get the fuck out of here with that outfit. <laughs> I, I, I know. I was... <laughs> Could you could you link a could we link a photo like I just yeah if I had one it. trust me uh, I'm gonna try to photoshop some shit together to figure out how I can put this how can we reenact this hero walking around looking like damn John Wayne literally carrying his rubber ducky I was walking to the room to go play my Xbox and I was just like classic private shit like. Hey, what are you doing? Or whatever the fuck they call this. Airman, what are you doing? Oh, hey. Hey, Sergeant, how you doing? What? <laughs> <laughs> hey, just one of these, like this emoji right here. Just Pretty much. So, they got medicines for that called push-ups. <laughs> yeah, I learned real quick. So. Oh, that's awesome, dude. Keep, what else happened at that training site for you? Um, so, you know, being 19 and like, I was still in the mindset of like, um, you know, fight the power. Like, I'm still going to be me. I hate authority, ironically, given what I signed up to do. <laughs> so it just, I was a, I was a piece of shit. <laughs> but um, like, you know, everybody, they would march and do the Air Force ah! type shit. And just me and other guys who came from Medina were like, this is the dumbest thing ever. When, I'm, I'm sorry, what noise did the Air Force make? Ah! Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was like some bastardized version of hua and ura. It was like they had a retarded baby together. That's that's what it was. Oh. Yeah. But so you were popular with your cadre at uh, at Fort Sam. It sounds like. Yes, very. They they all enjoyed me very much. Got very intimate with a lot of them as they were in my face nearly every day for a while until I figured it out. What so. kind of barracks were you guys in? Because we were still in. I don't know, 80, ships, 60 to 80 man bays at that point going through medic school in the army. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was really rough for us um, living over there in the air force barracks that they had just built and we shared with the Navy. I mean, had, I uh, had to share a room with a guy, the room, like the rooms weren't even a year old. I mean, we were really struggling there. It was, it was so terrible. And then the army dudes who are, you know, right across the street living in barracks. I was like, why are you guys bitching? This is easy. This is nice, cushion living. <laughs> Dude, if we would have, if, if the Hacienda still stood at that point in time, you'd have gotten kicked in the knees. <laughs> the Hacienda, I don't, I don't know if it was there when you were there, but it was like their NWR center with like a little movie theater and like mm -hmm. upstairs you could rent guitars and drums and stuff like that. But that was like the places where everybody would kind of intermix and catch cabs before you went out on the weekends. Did they have anything like that when you went through that schoolhouse? Like as far as partying on the weekends and getting cabs or like MWR? Like MWR, because I think the Hacienda got bulldozed down, which is f appropriate. It needed to go. But <laughs> did anything pop up in its place? Uh, I honestly, I have no, I lived in like this really tiny world when I was there. I was, uh, 
I was like, all right, I got this medic job, you know, going through EMT class. And I was like, all right, I'm kind of liking it a little bit. So I actually want to be good. So my first like three weekends there, I didn't leave my room. I just studied my book. Smart. And uh, that changed real quickly, obviously. But, um, but I mean, all I did was I'd go, go to, I'd wake up, go to class, come back, go to the gym. Like we had a track and everything right behind us. So I'd run on the track, do work. Like I, I didn't lift weights really at that point either. So I was just doing a whole bunch of calisthenic shit. And then there's a flag football team there. So started doing that, which was really fun. Um, yeah, my world was really small at first. And then after that, then I started uh, going out more. Yeah, that's funny. I remember I'd forgotten about that. I played on a flag football intramural team in AIT too. I had forgotten that that was the thing that we did. But I'm kind of glad you mentioned that. And what time, what point in time was this when you were at uh, – at Fort Sam? This had to be from like September, October, October of 2011, and then maybe no, September, September of 2011, and then to like March 2012, I want to say, late March. So, uh, Adam, to your point about the Hacienda deserving to be bulldozed, I can tell you that uh, I think some of those music rooms at times doubled as sort of like hourly motel rooms. Uh, but, oh, God. Uh, yeah, that place was a had the potential for a lot of public health hazard. Yeah, uh, a lot of COVID. So you were so you uh so you you're at medic training from September of what'd you say 2011 until March of 2012. Yep. And then you go, you get they cut you loose. You're a fully qualified Air Force medic, and what happens? You're off to Japan. Is that right? Yep. Yep. I like, I was like writing down my wish list and uh, the guy said, I suggest you put everything overseas. And me and me and my wife at the time had like, we weren't even like, I don't, yeah, we had like maybe just started dating. So I was like, fuck it. I'm gonna go to Japan. I'm a party. Yeah. And the guy told me, I was like, Hey, what are some good bases for, you know, single people and all this stuff? He's like, Oh, Masawa, you'll love Masawa. It's a great place. It is not a great place for single people. It is made for fucking families. He lied to me. I got lied to again. No. Yeah, it's a, theme so it. it's a nice theme building. I like it. Yeah. So, so here you are. Sour. Here you are, mad about your all expenses paid Air Force trip to Japan. And <laughs> I got to tell you, I had a. So I went to I went to you know medic school. I went to AIT at Fort Sam Houston too, and I had orders that I was excited about. And when we were talking about Rachel, or when we were talking to Rachel, uh, I was reminded of this as well. But I had orders that I was really excited for. I'm like, yes, you know, dreams do come true. I'm going to Wiesbaden, Germany, working the troop medical clinic there. Oh. It's great. Like my whole army career is falling together. And then they just put us in formation and they like called the first 28 male names alphabetically. Oh no. And told us to fall out. And they're like, we have news for you. Your orders are rescinded. You're all going to Fort Hood. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah. You know, and it didn't take a ton of like imagination or wherewithal. Uh, to understand that it's like we're going for a very specific purpose and it's to deploy, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. um, so I was really, I had written Japan down on every piece of paper where they're like indicated preference. I was like Japan, mm -hmm. Alaska, uh, like all the Italy, you know, all the overseas stuff that I could think of. So I'm interested to hear more about that. Yeah, I uh, well, before they did that, I, I went to Vegas to work in a ER for six weeks. And then right after that, then I hopped on, went on leave, hopped on a plane, got to Japan. 
And at the time, I didn't know that like Masawa was like a smaller, smaller base, smaller town. Uh, so I get there and oh, on the orders that I got too, it said, um, I can't, it said like emergency technician. So I, I was like, oh, I'll be working in the ER. Awesome. That's exactly what I wanted. Right. And I call my sponsor and he's like, hey, how you doing? It's like, oh, I'm doing good. He's like, you excited to come to baby town? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, baby, that's what we call labor and deliver, baby town. I was like, yeah, but that's not where I'm going. No, that's 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 where you're going. It's like, fuck, no, no. So, so let's back up. Let's uh, let's revisit this six week clinical rotation in a Las Vegas ER. How in the world did that come together for you, and what was it like? It sounds really exciting, but it was not because it was on base at Nellis. So I like. I thought I had lucked out by getting Nellis. I'm like, oh, I'm going to see a whole bunch of stabbings and shootings. Awesome. That's exactly what I want. I'm like, perfect. I get there, and it is not that at all. It's exactly what you think from a freaking on-base hospital. So, and at the time, I was 20. So, you know, you can imagine being 20 in Vegas, like a few months shy of turning 21, how angry that would make you. Um, like, searching all the fucking... Uh, corners of the enters of net for 18 and up clubs, finding almost nothing except for like a random one here and there. So I'm like, yeah, okay. And it was like mostly 12 and 16 hour shifts. So didn't go out too frequently, but went out a couple of times. A friend, she got called back into VIP with Mike Tyson. I got Hell. Oh, yeah. God. oh, it was Mike Tyson God. and 50 Cent. My bad. Mike Tyson and 50 Cent. So I would have, I would have been like, here, take my friend and sent you. And then I would have left. That's yeah, if, only, if only that, you know, they were interested in dudes, but they were not. I was like, hey, oh, your, your dreams are crushed. <laughs> right? It's like, please, 50, have a bisexual side. Please bring me up there. I just want to be in VIP. <laughs> let oh, me God. be your mistake. Let me, <laughs> let me be your mistake. I've learned your guys' errors that you guys don't own tigers. If you guys own tigers in Vegas, you could have gone wherever you wanted. Yeah, so I basically just stumbled across laws like the strip drunken and all that stuff. Uh went to the went to the strip club, an 18 and up strip club called the Can Can, right? So me and like a few buddies went there. It was my first one. I should have there were so many red flags before we even got there. Like for one, the name. Two, when we got there, outside there were posters of chicks from the nineties. Like yeah. <laughs> late eighties, so I'm like, all right. It's like cool, and this is where my love for one star, uh, one star strip clubs uh, started, oh, right God. here. Because we get in there, right? He's like, hey, you guys must be military, right? We had the high and tights, all that shit. And he's like, just giving us drinks. I'm like, yes, yeah, awesome. And I got in an argument with a stripper because she wanted me to tell her that she was pretty, and I said, no, <laughs> not gonna do that. <laughs> not gonna do that. So like, just tell me I'm pretty. It's like, no, this is what you want. Oh, just this is an easy transaction. No, I'm not gonna tell you you're pretty. And so that got called. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the guy's like, hey, 300 bucks. You guys can go to the back room. 30 minutes, whatever. No questions asked. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good, man. I'm good. And Don't do it. I said I'm good. My other buddy said I'm good. And I looked at the guy to my left. He's no longer there. He is in a full sprint to the ATM around the corner. So I go after him, I'm like, hey, you know, dude, what are, you, what are you doing? It's like, 
It was, I swear to God, it looked like Gollum when he fucking got the ring. He's like, I need this. <laughs> okay. All right. Precious. <laughs> so, I think you need to let that happen. <laughs> Desperation yeah, so there. Like 2.30 like in the morning, we're waiting in the truck, and he comes out, and just the look of disgust, and uh, he, he just, he was defeated, you could tell. So I don't know what happened. We never asked him, right? We tried to. He didn't say anything. He got in the truck and he said, let's just go home. <laughs> it was and never some, spoke yeah. of? The details nope. were never known? No, still not. He oh. refuses to talk about it. So we have, we've been speculating. We have no idea, but he still will not talk about it. That's funny that you're still connected in real life. This has to be like super, if only, if only this was a live show, Adam, and this guy was tuning in. <laughs> He'd just be like on pins and needles. <laughs> At that point, this person needs to message us and let us know when you're available to come on to the podcast because we have a story that we want to hear. The story of sacrifice. Yes. Like, oh, we want to talk about my military service. No, we want to talk about service, all right? Just not your military service. I want to know if this person's service connected for that incident. How bad was it? Is that considered line of duty? I have so many questions. I'm sure he can put a put in a claim to the VA for that for the uh, the PTSD and trauma that it did to him. Just I'm intrusive sure. thoughts the whole way, man. It's it's terrible. Yeah. So uh, you you escape Vegas with mm-hmm. most of your morals and dignity and hide intact, and then it's time to go to Baby Town. Yes. So, so orient, orient me to Baby Town. So uh, get off the plane. My supervisor takes me to this. Uh, once again, the living conditions were terrible. Absolutely terrible. Is it like Air Force standard terrible or like Army standard terrible? Oh, it's like like Afghan terrible. Like it's oh they had uh they had the uh, the family like apartments. They had to rent them out to like individual soldiers. I can't remember why. So I had uh, to share a three bedroom apartment with two other guys, and I had my own bedroom. I mean, it was wait what this is hold on this is bad. This it was terrible. Absolutely. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm on my first duty station. We were sleeping four to a room that was like barracks from the 60s, probably. And like we'd gone to CIF and we'd gotten like your foam little floor mat and all that shit. And we were sleeping on the floor in those for the first probably a month. Yeah, that's a that's I had a moment when I reported to my first unit in the big army and they put me in this like transient barracks room. And it was like, oh, yeah, you you need to take the mattress out of the wall locker and put it down, you know, like put it down on, on the floor or the, or the bear springs there and we'll come get you eventually. And then just looking at it like I'm like, oh, I sure went through a lot of trouble to end up here in this relatively urine smelly cinder block cube, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that. I'm like, how did you get along with your two roommates in your three-bedroom apartment? Like, that sounds, mm. like you said, terrible. Yeah, oh, it was. Um, one of them, uh, me and my boy, uh, Traven, we called him Hermit because this guy never came out of his room unless to get Doritos or Mountain Dew. And he played Xbox all day. And he constantly, like, the few times he did he did talk, he bitched about how shitty Masao was, but it was because he spent all of his time in his room. Yeah, Adam, I see you out of Have you uh have you like encountered the the hermit type of soldier in your 
military career. You'd think those dudes were sponsored by Mountain Dew and Doritos with the way that they can totally check out and for hours just play video games. And then at the same time, bitch about where they're stationed. It's, it's, mm-hmm. like, a, it's like a character that every unit must have, at least a couple of them in there. But I'm telling you, I fucked up once. I went, went to this dude's room and I played him in like NBA Live or something like that. He fucking smoked me like 100 to 30 in a video like, game. And I'm just like, yeah. all right, well, at least you're good at this. Like if you suck at this, we'd have to talk, but at least you just straight whoop my ass in it. He literally hurts your feelings with his PlayStation. Uh, you have to have feelings to get him hurt. <laughs> uh, how about you, Karen? Did you find uh, many of those folks around in the MP world? Oh, yeah. We had, like, a happy little mix. Um, I, like, my at Fort Benning, when I first got there, they put us up in barracks that were condemned. So we had, like, colonies of cockroaches that were mm. probably about, like, two to three inches long, just running around all the time. It was nice. Um yeah, it was great. Uh, and then eventually they, they moved us then to like this old housing that I think got condemned too. So it was just kind of a cycle of living in, in shitty rooms that no one should be living in. It was nice. I wonder how condemnation segregates one set of buildings from another. Like these are bad, but these are condemned. Yeah. And you still, yeah. like, you still get but to But people live. are still living in them. Like right. they're condemned. But we're still gonna have people living them. It's fine. It's not that bad. Sounds like the army. Yeah, it takes yeah. one commander yeah. signature to keep people in those rooms. That's all it takes. Yeah, there, there yeah. it is. Yeah, uncondemned kind of. Hey, why but, do you treat your soldiers this way? Because fuck them. That's why. <laughs> because, because I can. No, I don't know. It's not. I'm sure that. You know, there are reasons for all that stuff. Very good reasons. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like it was a money thing because if they didn't have barracks for us to live in on post minus those condemned areas, so it was either you give everybody BAH housing to live off post, which ultimately they ended up doing that with a lot of people, or you're going to live in condemned barracks. So I think it was a cost-saving measure. Well, I know we've kind of like brushed on some of like the weird stuff that soldiers encounter in terms of environmental exposures, but there's been a lot of news about private military housing and other sorts of military housing where people are getting some really gnarly exposures, be it from contaminated like groundwater or, you know, uh, buildings that just haven't been maintained properly and and are becoming toxic themselves. So it's just wild. And it's one of those things to keep your eyes on as a, as a, you know, soldier, a a veteran or an advocate. But, um, so baby wow. town, you're doing lots of uh, labor and delivery stuff, huh? Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, it was a good experience, but yeah, yeah. My uh, my first uh, my first sergeant, she uh, she could I like she knew right away I didn't want to be there, and I made it very painfully clear, hey, I really don't want to be here. But you know, once again, I'll do the job very well because I'm here, and people might die if I don't. So. Um, Ended up having to go through, oh God, what's the class called? Um, it's like the neonate resuscitate, NRP, there we go. Neonate resuscitation program. So I went through that uh, and, and did all this other stuff. So um, ended up getting pretty good, you know, with resuscitating babies, doing lines on pregnant moms, doing baby line or lines on babies and all this other stuff like that. So, I mean, that was, you know, it was, it was a good experience. So, Sounds incredibly technical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Those yeah. skills aren't natural. You know, I remember going back to learning IV skills and stuff like that. And it seemed like, <clears throat> you know, I had a mental block for the longest time. And then once it clicked, it clicked. And then mm-hmm. you can only imagine like your game's going to ante up with a newborn. And, you know, how are you going to find placement? You know, what yep. gauge needles are you using? The, the time sucks there. You've got parents standing around you in their most vulnerable capacity. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the tension in the room is pretty high at that point, I can imagine. Yeah. And it made it especially difficult, too, because the hospital that I was working in was very small. So um, on, so like I mostly worked night shift after I, you know, they were like, Hey, you're competent enough. You know, we don't need to hold your hand. So then they put me on night shift right away, which was awesome. I love the night. I'm a night rat. Um, And so at night, it's just a doc is sleeping in the back room. We have two nurses and then myself. And so being like the only tech there, I have to have to set up the entire room for everything, take vitals, start the line on the mom when she gets in do all, like do all the stuff if you know we got to go back to the surge ward which was like you could hawk a loogie to it from where we were at um i had to get all that stuff set up and, and everything like that delivery was coming I had to get all the tools set up had to memorize which which doc likes what where and all this other crazy stuff and i mean um yeah it was a it was a lot to to throw at somebody right away i think but Luckily, like my NCOs and at the time and all that stuff and the officers there were really cool and they, uh, they kind of, they, they prepped me for it really well. Like, I don't know if they could have done a better job. So, Well, that's interesting because like, you know, most military experiences, it's just military service members with the service members where you were getting exposed to, you know, dependents and things like that. And I think there's a, there's a big difference in how you treat people, you know, whether they're in the military or out of the military. And I, I can imagine that played off of your culture. Like for you, what was your experience straddling the line between being a service member, but then also being able to speak to civilians in a way to where they felt like they were getting good care? Um, it, it wasn't that hard. At least I don't, I don't think it was for me. It was because like, especially early on, I was still kind of in the, like I'm in the military, but like, I'm still not, sipping the Kool-Aid yet and all that stuff. So like, it was just, it felt like it was just me, you know? So conversing with, with people in that has always been fairly easy for the most part, unless that, you know, you get a patient that you talk to and then they just give you one. Hey, how you doing today? Good. All right. I'll go fuck myself then. Like, like those, but um, I mean, it, it wasn't too bad. You know, a lot of the dependents that we, you know, were the ones delivering, but we had a few that were like, you know, majors or captains or sergeants or something like that. So, I mean, it, I didn't, I didn't think it was that hard talking to them because they were all pretty relaxed and, and all that stuff. Nobody tried to throw a rank at me if they were a patient or something like that. So it was, it's pretty fortunate, I guess. In that aspect. So would you, like how many dozens of babies have you been involved in bringing into the world? 72. 72. Oh, you know the exact number. Yeah, I because when I got out, my my flight chief, Sergeant Tuttle, had me had me track, had me go and get, get like count of all the patients, all the babies I helped deliver because we had to write them down in the book if we were doing it. Um, and she was like, "Hey, this will be important for you later." It wasn't, but I mean, it was good to know. So for some reason, I remember that number now, all the time, seventy-two. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So do you think once you got there and you were there for a little bit, did you change your mind about wanting to be there or was it just a continual, like, okay, I'm, I want to move on from this. Oh. No, I, I, the whole two years, like, I mean, I like enjoy, enjoyed my time in Masawa. I ended up getting off base and having a good time, met a lot of great people. Um, so I enjoyed Masawa as like a whole like station, but working in L and D I didn't want to be there, but 
I did it. And then I, uh, I went down to the ER people like at night shifts, we didn't have any patients or something like that. Like the nurses were cool. They'd be like, Hey, you know, you're good. So I'd go down to the ER, play, learn, learn all their stuff. So I got certified to work down in their ER as well. So if they had some sort of issue, I went down there or I, if they needed to go out on an ambulance call, I had to either hop into the rig with them or, or go down there. So, um, but no, I did not, I did not want to be there all the way up until the day I left. I did not want to be in labor and delivery at all. Well, did that start to develop your itch for more pre-hospital care at that point? Um, I think so. Like I had like seen ambulances, even in training and all that stuff, you know, I had never really been on one as it was going. And then like, I think I'd been on like two or three calls while I was there in the rig and it was amazing. I was like, this is awesome. I can just flip the light switch, drive, go, and no one's going to stop me. So that, and then working in the ER to, you know, not knowing what you're going to get. I know it's not, Hey, mom's coming in. We have a heads up. Mom's coming in. Cool. This is her umpteenth baby, or this is her first baby. So there was like some sort of predictability with L and D to a degree, but I know like working in the ER, it was unpredictable. And then the rig was awesome. So that definitely kind of got me hooked. Now, were you guys just staying local to the base that we're on or would you guys go out into communities as well? There was a, there was a few times they'd go off base. It was, it was if like a, a U.S. service member had an incident off base. Like there was one where uh, this dude was riding his bike and like slipped or something like that and went underneath the rail and his body, no, yeah, his body kept going, his head did not. So, and then uh, went on that call and my kick lighter just picks up this, the helmet and the head's like still in there. So, and that was, that was pretty bad. And that was like the first, that was like the first uh, introduction of, oh shit, shit can really go wrong, like real bad. So, but other than that though, like, no, we wouldn't go off base for other stuff. So when you were working in that, you know, military emergency room setting and responding to calls on an ambulance, what kind of training did you have in terms of handling tough calls like the one you sort of just described? Not really, like not much, because I'd only been out on three calls, so there wasn't much. And then in the ER, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't as much emphasis on like, hey, there wasn't like set programs like, hey, if you are having an issue with this or whatever, you know, let so-and-so know. It was very informal because uh, the the um, the first sergeant and the, the CO down in the ER were, they were, they were awesome. And so if there was ever an issue, they took care of their guys real well. And hey, if they knew it was a bad call, they like someone came to the ER and it was bad, they would take them aside and talk to them. So it was, there wasn't a formal training set up, but they, they just kind of took it upon themselves and just did it. So in that sort of using that informal sort of like critical incident stress debriefing model, did you, did somebody come talk to you? I mean, I, I, I was, I was in the rig, so I, I wasn't like out there doing it. Like, cause they, they just took me out as an extra. So I was basically just driving. They kind of dealt with it. Uh, it was kick lighter and I forgot who the other, other uh, tech was. But so, I mean, like for me, because at that point I'd already, I had, I had seen, I had like just got done, wait, I don't know, it was before or after, but I had already seen like a, a few bad things. So it wasn't like, I wasn't like hands-on with it. I wasn't actually doing it. So none of that registered for me. It wasn't like, oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling all this stress from it. It was just like, 
that's a really shitty call. That sucks. And so I didn't have, I, I didn't have any nightmares, no anything from that. So. And you felt like that team was pretty well supported. Yeah, absolutely. Even felt like that team was pretty well supported by their leadership. Yeah. yeah. Well, even in L and D too, like there is a, like there is a baby that died there and I was working on it. Like we were working the entire night shift through and all that stuff. And like, it was a, that, that was a really shitty night and all the nurses were all females and they all did their huddle and cry thing. Um, and then all that stuff. And then, yeah, I was good. And they kept, they kept asking me, Hey, are you Campbell? Are you good? Are you okay? like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> so there was, like I said, very informal ways to, for them reaching out to their people. But I mean, it happened for sure. That's good to hear. Was Has your experience in military healthcare been uh, like, you, would you say your peers have been mostly female, mostly male, or like a good mix at all times? Or has it changed from assignment to assignment? Um, it was a pretty, I feel like it was a pretty even mix when I was in the Air Force, at least as far as like when I was in the medical field. Um, There's a pretty good mix of people, you know, male and female, except for, in, you know, labor and delivery, obviously. Um, other than that, though, it was pretty evenly mixed out. And then in the Army, um, mostly male oriented few females especially when i was when i was a medic too there was, was like half and half almost maybe like one third to two third or something like that so you were in japan did you get a chance to get out and um you know take it in and if so like what was your probably fa- favorite part about being a tourist in japan oh and yeah i definitely i didn't get out as, as much as i wanted to um but definitely got out went to some clubs went to like tokyo a couple times went to sendai which is essentially like going to chicago for Madison, um, went snowboarding on uh, Mount Hakoda, which is like apparently a world famous uh, like mountain that people come from all over the world to go snowboarding down this thing. And then um, played rugby a couple of times over there too. And like met dudes from like a New Zealand destroyer came into Tokyo randomly. We ended up playing them. These dudes from Australia, like it was, it was, it was amazing. So I think rugby was my favorite part uh, of to- or out of Tokyo, of Japan, that or the snowboarding, for sure. That's an awesome experience. <laughs> like, Japan's on my bucket list, for sure. Just between, like, the food, the tourism, getting on the bullet train, just uh, in as small of an island as it is, how much is really going on? It seems like it'd be a cool right. cool place to bop around in. Yeah, I mean, they're really receptive to Americans, too. They, you know, with the exception of, like, some people here and there, like, there's a few clubs we went to and we got turned away and said no Americans and stuff like that. So, but other than that though, I mean, like the people were awesome. The cities were clean. I, I, we went out one time um, to like a, in Sendai, got, you know, just blackout drunk. I don't know how I got home, but none of my friends were with me. So I assume that some j- kind Japanese people helped me out because our hotel was like five miles away. I know I did not walk five miles this drunk. Were there vending machines everywhere for everything in Japan? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Adam, you can cut this if you need to cut this, but I have to ask him because I know someone else that went it's to... definitely stayed in the episode, but let's hear it. Okay. <laughs> Were there dirty panty vending machines? I didn't see any dirty panty vending machines, but I did see vending machines with clothes in them. Some of them were definitely panties. I don't know if they were used or not. Okay. I've got friends who are pretty introverted, and I think the idea of vending machines is like the perfect world for them. If they didn't ever have yeah. to associate with people and just go get their stuff from vending machines, that would be an ideal world. Yeah. If you're an introvert, Japan's like a fucking safe haven for you. Like it's 
everyone respects personal space for the most part. I mean, and everyone's very polite. So, I mean, awesome. yeah, you hear that. And then you see folks like cramming onto the subway car, you know, and I'm like, how do I reconcile these two images that I'm getting? Right. I, I think that's like bigger cities and like public transit, but like when you're out and, and about and all that stuff, I mean, I didn't have an issue. It's not like here in Afghanistan where dudes are like nose to nose. If you're trying to have a conversation, like people were at a respectable yeah. distance and all that stuff. So I, I didn't, and I, I like my bubble and nobody came into my bubble unless we're at like a bar or a club or something like that, which that is understandable. So what happens after Japan? So after Japan, I was like, all right, I had my next duty station was like somewhere in Arizona. And I was like, I didn't extend. So I don't know what the fuck this is, but I'm, I'm out. And they're like, no, well, you have to go. It was like, you're going to, you're involuntarily extended. Or I don't, remember how it was explained to me. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not how that works, but okay. I was still like a, like a private essentially at the time. So um, I was like, all right, I'm out. And this was like right when Obama like started the whole sequestration process. So I'm like, well, if they're going to kick people out, I might as well join the guard so I can still be in. Right. And so I had like gone through a million and one emails and people and had found a way to do this program where you transfer from active military, active duty to uh, national guard. And then I was like, all right, I'm out. Cool. Deuces. And came back home and reported to the 115th where I read at Truex field. So that was in the air national guard, right? <laughs> yep. So you had started off like looking at basically some uh, pretty high level, like, I don't know, it's maybe just one or two tiers beneath special forces for the air force doing the SEER instructor stuff mm -hmm. and kind of decided against moving through that based on like the lifestyle mm -hmm. you thought you'd have after you completed the training. And then you ended up in the doing labor and delivery. Right. So, so the first thing was like too much suck. And then yep. you and then you go to baby town and that's not enough suck. Yeah. Right. And on, and and you're kind of looking for the right fit. And over the course of this time, are you it sounds like you're performing at a pretty high level. Were you being rated favorably by your supervisors? Yeah. I um I had an issue with one captain. Um like she was cool at first, but you know, had a little issue with her. I think it was a personality thing. Um, but after, other than that though, like I, I got all good, like EPRs, all my EPRs were like above average, all this other stuff. Like I was, I was good. I was like on top of my shit down there. Like if they had a question, like they had me training new people coming in. So, um, I mean, I feel like I picked it up pretty quick, was trained very well, but picked it up pretty quick. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was being rated terribly and all that stuff. So that was, that, that, that definitely wasn't the issue. Uh, so you're coming off active duty and you find yourself in the Air National Guard over at the 115th. What was that transition like? Harder than I thought. <laughs> um, you know, I hear all these, even before I joined active, I, like, or when I was in the process, I, you know, heard these stories about National Guard, and I'm like, man, a bunch of bitch-ass part-time soldiers. Pfft, stupid, right? So I already had that mindset, right, going in, and then <laughs> crossed over to uh, Air Guard, and, and luckily, my, my supervisor, when I got there, used to be in the 105th, used to be in the army. So he was, and he used to be active dude, I think active before that. So I can't remember, but um, I mean, it was, it was a pretty, 
easy transition as far as getting settled in and everybody was nice and friendly and all that stuff and very helpful. So, I mean, it wasn't like these stories you hear about getting to a new unit. And like you said, Hey, just lay down and we'll come find you. We'll come get you at some point. So it was, it, it, it was a, it was very easy as far as the unit was. What was the culture change like? Oof. Um, so how do I put this? Um, less abrasive, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, with the people I worked with in the ER and all that stuff, especially being in the medical field, the black humor, the dark humor was very, you know, prevalent. And I get there and it's not at all like that. Like it was very, uh, it was more uptight, more, not uptight, um, I guess more uh, proper there at first with some people. So it was, it's kind of weird. There were a few people who were, you know, normal medical shit, you know, stuff like that. But I mean, it was just, it was just weird. And everybody was a lot more laid back too. Like, I was like, I would never go up and just randomly talk to an E7. And here I'm like having a, just holding a regular conversation with one. I'm like, this is new. Or a, a company commander. I'm like, this is definitely not, not normal for me. So um, it was just a little bit more laid back. You know, they turned it on when they needed to, um, but they were more relaxed for the most part. What does the 115th do? Uh, they support the, the, the F-16s there. I don't think the F-35s are there yet, but there is like one group that takes, basically takes care of the pilots, does all their, all their stuff and all that, like all their medical write-ups and checkups and all that shit. And then, um, there is the other side, which was the surf P, which is what responds to like national disasters and all this other stuff. So like Seaburn and, and Decon and all that, all that shit. And that's what I ended up doing. Cause I'm like, all right. That seems to be the most hardcore thing here. Let me do that. And then I tried to get on the search and rescue team there, but it was already full. So I'm like, all right, I'll do this. This is fine. So, so you ended up doing chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear tests as a medic. Is that what? Is that pretty much. Yeah. So it's so like if um so my job was we get there right and like hey we get called up we have to go set up like green yellow red tents and then set up and then army was working on the decon and then um. I would go out either be in the red tent or I would go out and triage patients in like full mop gear stuff and all that and drag them back and all that. So that, that was, those are basically my jobs. And then just getting every getting all the equipment ready for it and shit. So it w wasn't, wasn't hard. How long were you in that role? I'm sorry. No, I was just going to joke around. You'd, you'd be well positioned today for this COVID thing. You'd have all your mop gear. You could go to a grocery shop with no stress. Right. Be fucking sick. Just walk around with my papper. I'm good. <laughs> so I had a, I had an interesting experience last week at the grocery store. And, uh, and I thought I'd share it with you guys. There was a, I saw my first like full blown mall ninja of this current crisis. And I like, didn't know what to make of it because I was just, I was leaving the Piggly Wiggly as this individual who was in like head to toe, black on black on black with the tactical shades and the, and like the tactical backpack with the Molly straps on the outside. I was like, ooh, you are ready for your grocery expedition. And I, you know, I had to laugh to myself a little, right? I'm like, this guy. Like, I bet he's got a katana. <laughs> I was just going to say, did he have a sword? <laughs> like, I bet he's got a, like, it's either a collapsible baton or a katana and some ninja stars somewhere, right? But um, 
So I laughed. I laughed at, you know, as I was loading my groceries into my car, my soy milk and my gluten-free pancakes and stuff. But uh, <laughs> then I, I went back a couple of days because it was really just like fresh fruit and stuff that I was getting. And I went mm-hmm. back and I swear I saw the same guy because I recognized, I recognized the backpack and the mm-hmm. pants that he was wearing. And again, it's like black on black and the, and the backpack is like had the tactical molly straps and this embroidered skull with a beret on it, which was really like what sent me over the top, you know? And this is just this dude, like salt and pepper hair, his paunch is hanging over his, his, his pants, you know, he's just like, just a guy wearing, wearing stuff. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think he had any designs. So a lot of that was on me, just my head, just like taking me to a, to a different place, you know, making assumptions. But that backpack was just like, Attack the coolest thing I've seen. Dude, in he probably time. he probably would have served, but he was he probably would have yelled at the drill sergeant. So that's why he didn't join up. Yeah, they were they were they weren't doing it right. They were doing it wrong. So I had to fix them. So you uh <laughs> you hit the one fifteenth. How long were you there? You're trying to do you're trying to find the appropriate level of suck that's going to make you happy. Um, uh, get end up doing CBRN stuff. Let's see from like May to. Uh, let's see, May to like June, I think May of 2014 to like June, I want to say of 2014, um, was doing that. And even before I had left, uh, left active, I was like, all right, there's gotta be something. I'm like, it was funny because it popped up on my memories on Facebook, like PJ or army medic. Right. (laughs) So I was like, all right, well, PJ, the only guard bases are like in California. So I'm like, all right, that's out of the question. I'm like, all right, uh, pararescueman. There's not a J in there. Yeah, it's pararescue jumper. It's like a flight medic that also has some uh, spec ops type responsibilities. That so it's a mix of like an army pathfinder and a flight medic. Probably would be an easy way to summarize it. That's accurate. Yeah, sounds pretty um, sexy. Yeah, I mean they go down and I guess rescue like down pilots and shit like that. So I mean it sounds cool and all that stuff. So, but. and you're like, oh no, that's not for me. Yeah, I uh, yeah, the guard base was all the way on the other end of the country, so I'm like, all right, that's kind of out of the question. So, and I had just started applying for this, you know, city Madison fire department at that point. So it's like I'm like, I, you know, I can't really go anywhere. Um, so I talked to my my sergeant. And I was like, hey man, you know, what was the army? I started asking like a million and one questions about the army. Hey, what was it like? He's like, what the fuck are you asking me all these questions? Like, you want to go join the army? Like, well, actually, yeah, that's, that's why I'm asking you these questions. Yeah. I've been looking stuff up online. And um, so then he hooked me up with uh, the 105th Sergeant. I can't remember who, what his name was, but hooked me up with him and kind of got the ball rolling there. So, and then after about like six, six months, maybe seven months or whatever, I was headed to basic and then um, yeah, army basic all over or basic all over again. Where'd you go? I went to Fort Jackson. Blacks and Jackson. Yep. It lived up to his name for sure. Contrast that with your basic training for the Air Force. Shit. Man, I thought, okay, so being 19 and being 24 were, you know, two very different times in your life, right? And what if five years apart? Yeah. <laughs> Just being helpful. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, basic training. I'm like, oh, it'll be easy, man. It'll be do 10 weeks instead of eight weeks, whatever. Cool. And I get there and I'm like, get the whole, you know, yelling at you, the shark tank right off the freaking bat of the 
uh, the uh, uh, bus, and I'm like, yes, this is what I wanted. I'm like, yes, give me that full metal jacket shit. Yeah, right? And then I was like, okay, going through. I'm like, we're like in formation multiple times, a bunch of kids talking and shit. I'm like, what, what, what is this? Because when I went through basic and Air Force, we got smoked for blinking too many times or like crazy shit, right? I got smoked for dust bunnies. I got smoked for a freaking piece of string on, on my uniform. Had none of that in army. It was not what I expected in any way, shape or form at all. What year was this that you were doing basic again? 2015. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Makes more sense now. When did know, things right? change, Karen? Huh? <laughs> when did things change? Like when did it, when did it turn into new school basic training? Like, when did it get too soft for you? <laughs> I know. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I went, I went through in 2004. Hey. Uh, so, like, you know, that's, that's so much. I don't know. I want to know, though. I want to find out when the switch was made to mm -hmm. this Cush basic training. There has to be a year when all of a sudden they were like, we're going to revamp. You went to Fort Lauderdale, right? Fort Jackson's yeah. always been shit on though for being a pretty relaced place to get your basics on. It's, yeah, it's, it's mixed. Co it's like co-ed. It's just not, a, I, I've heard, Le you know, Leonard Wood's a Leonard bit tougher. Leonard Wood was co-ed. But I think that there's just a knack for Leonard Wood being a bit tougher than Jackson. You know, that's just the generalizations I've heard going around. Same. Any good basic training stories? Oh, uh, fight club in the bathroom. So, uh, one of the buddies that's in my wedding, we, we met there and he was, uh, I think like 28 at the time. Right. So, and it sounds stupid saying like kids, right. You're a bunch of old men. Yeah. Essentially. Right. We were fucking grandpas. I mean, there's a dude who was 40. He was like great grandpa. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, like there was, it was just annoying. It was like, Hey guys, it's really simple. Just do what the fuck you're supposed to do. It's real. Like, don't talk, do it. Like it, it just these concepts seemed foreign to people which blew my mind at the time and like the physical aspect of it was much harder but like the mental aspect seemed for me much easier because like everything didn't have to be as in place so um i forgot what we were doing one day but somebody fucked up there's this one kid that i would get into with it all the time and i can't remember his name i'm glad i don't but and he was we were like trying to sweep and he was mopping and it was like or sweeping and it was uh it was like 2200 i'm like dude we gotta be up at six and he's walking around singing like not just like humming to himself but like being just stupid singing do, doing what like any 18 year old dumbass would do right and i'm like dude can you can you stop we're trying to sleep and then he told me to fuck off or something like that so i hopped down from the bed i said do you want to go to the bathroom because you know at this point i'd been there we'd been there for like four weeks so i'm like I, I just don't don't give a shit anymore and i know i could kick his ass too which is also why i did it but um I was like, do you want to go to the bathroom? He's like, no. I'm like, all right, then shut the fuck up. Let me go to sleep. Went back up, started doing it again. So then I was like, all right, let's go. I took his mop or broom, whatever the fuck it was, went to the bathroom. And then, of course, a crowd gathered and had a nice little fight, whooped his ass, which I'm so proud of because there's not many times I have done that in life. <laughs> but, and then that became a regular thing. After that, if you have a problem, you go to the bathroom, you know, fucking solve it there. It didn't happen very often, but. Um, I'm glad that I was one who started that in my crowning achievements. Congratulations. <laughs> Certainly a proud legacy. Bullying someone over there, over their choice of song while mopping, Charlie. You should be ashamed of yourself. No, he was being loud, obnoxious. No, it wasn't his, his song sucked too, but that wasn't. <laughs> what song was it? Do you remember? Is it that bad an incident know. that you remember? I don't know. It was, I was, I don't know. It was some stupid 
I don't know. It was one of those songs they play on the radio 8,000 times or some shit like that. The kids start dabbing and doing all that crazy nonsense. Or shenanigans. Dude, yeah, talk about the old man. Don't walk in my grass. <laughs> well, I can relate to getting kind of cranky when people mess with my sleep in, in basic training environments, but uh, I don't know. I never, never beat somebody up. With, with the mop that I took from them over it. But, but uh, so basic training, you had to redo that to transfer from the Air Force Reserve component to the Army National Guard, right? And then did you have to go back through AIT? Uh, kind of. So they, so I got to my unit or got to the med unit and whatever. And I was like, hey, I'm a medic too. And uh, the one of the E6s at the time said, no, you're not. Shut up. I was like, but, but I, Air, Air Force, I, I'm a medic. No, you're not. And I was like, okay, cool. And I worked with them on the force too in the, uh, on the ambulance um, for a little bit. So I'd see them at drill and I'd see them when I'd go work at the volunteer department. So, and he was like, you got to go through 68 whiskey school. I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so ended up getting getting sent to I think it was like Helena Montana to go do like a like basically it's like a reclass school they sent like there's other NCOs and other E4s there and all that stuff like that so um which was really cool so we got treated like adults the entire six weeks eight weeks six eight eight six weeks eight weeks there we go. yeah because it's two eight week portions one is the EMT course and the other is the combat medic course yeah you got man, so you didn't go back to Fort Sam. I figured you'd have gone back to Fort Sam and just jumped into the next phase of their AIT program. That's what I thought too. And um, I didn't argue with them when they said you're not going back to Fort Sam. I was like, oh no. It's a, yeah, you get to see another part of the country on mm-hmm. you know the military is done. So was the was the training any different besides the location? Um, is as far as like my my Air Force medical training? Yeah. Yeah, oh, vastly different. Yeah, it's like oh, really? Air Force uh, training was more geared toward working in a hospital. Um, like we had an entire portion of uh, of it based on nursing care, right? So, um, like if you put like even now, if you put me in a hospital, like you put me on an inpatient ward or something like that, like a lot of that stuff like come will, will come back and because I'm like, oh hey, I know that I I did that, I remember that. Um, and then the Army training, obviously, you guys went through it vastly different so it's like like being an er tech or being an emt so it was very different it was awesome too i loved it and um at that time too i there were guys who were like there were days where it just sucked we would like be doing like the fake scenarios and like doing the fake movements and like all right casualties over there dragging back and i was like loving all the shit like all the suck i was smiling through like my nickname was simple jack for it because i was always smiling so I, I enjoyed it a lot. It was a very good time. Simple Jack. You did like the TC3 modules and, and the sort of like field oriented stuff during that mm-hmm. time too, right? Yep. Did all that. So, and, and reorient into the, to the time around what time this was again, because you're concurrently trying to get on with uh, Madison fire or mm-hmm. going through that process. Yep. Uh, let's see. Um, so I applied for Madison in January of 2015, and then I got sent to that. So it was uh, I would have had to been there like March, April, of like 2015. I want to say, no, yep, fuck. 
public safety slash military math encountering at its best right here. One more time. <laughs> Got off September 2015. Okay, 2016. There we go. There we go. 2016. Right year. Correct year. There we go. Apply so you're yeah, applied for Madison Fire and left for AIT again. Yep, and I, I knew that it was a long process because I had gotten I'd gotten I'd gone through like the the you know sixteen hundred applicant test and all that stuff and they're like hey got an email and said you're in the B band you'll start going through the process next year so I was like okay I have a year to get ready so I'm like don't have to worry about me missing an interview or something like that so um so I was good so I was like all right go to the sixty eight whiskey course do that and then uh, graduated came home and was finally a medic, a real medic. Real life medic. And you get on with the fire department and then decide that after all this work, after being trained twice, you want to be an infantryman. Yeah, that was a, that was a kind of a, a prereq, prereq for, uh, to get on this deployment. Cause initially, cause I had been, I had been looking online. I forgot the site, but I was like, hey, where can I find deployments and all that stuff? So I was looking on the site to get like individual ones where you can hop on with people and stuff who need a medic. Um, I had been looking like crazy for it, been asking around, nothing. And what then site I, is been, I, I can't remember. It's some it's some army site. I one of the guys, one of the uh, medical NCOs told me, and so I was like checking it constantly and, and trying to line it up with dates and, and all that stuff. So it just and then the, a lot of them were like need an E5, need an E6, E7. So they were like senior medic positions and all that stuff. And I obviously at that time was not a senior medic. So just, I was like, all right, well, none of that's going to work. And I had been a, been a line medic with Charlie Troop of the one of the 105th for a while. So I was going out with them and then this deployment popped up and uh, they had like, some of the guys had been making jokes. You might as well just come, you know, be with us. Might as well just reclass and come to Charlie full time. I was like, I was thinking about it. I was like, yeah, I'll do the paperwork. It's easy. And then the other medic with me was also thinking the same thing. He had tried initially, got denied. And then we tried again. We heard this deployment was coming down. So they're like, they're not taking medics. They're only taking, you know, infantrymen. So we're like, perfect fucking opportunity. So we filled out the paperwork and then transferred over there. And then I think we ended up coming to Hood and maybe, I think I only had like one or two drills at Charlie as an actual Charlie Troop guy before we ended up going down the hood or River Falls first and then hood. How'd they get you guys MOS qualified as 11 Bravos? Uh, we had to go through a reclass school, which was like two weeks long. So, so I, uh, I went back to Camp Atterbury and we'd been there for AT. No, uh, hey, Kurt, we're at Atterbury for XETC. AT? Never mind. It was an AT at Camp Atterbury. And so we, oh, that's right. That was Grayling. We had went to uh, Camp Atterbury for an AT and it was, uh, it was a fun AT, but I just remember the place was not fun, mostly because of like the foot long thorns. <laughs> Crawling through that is not fun. So, um, but yeah, ended up going back there for a two week infantry course. And that was awesome. Learned a lot. And then I came back to Charlie Troop. Went up to River Falls, then down the hood. From there, where? Uh, then to good old Afghanistan. 
what have you been up to there? You said you're kind of stood down now, mostly yeah. trying to fend off boredom at the yeah. at the time, but or you know currently. But uh, what what's your mission set like when you're not sort of like operationally? Like like what are we doing now that we have no mission essentially? No, yeah. what was when you guys have a mission? What's that look like? Um. Security, pretty much. Just uh, we're basically running security for the for the advisors over here, making sure they don't get shot, we don't get shot, blown up, all that crazy stuff. So, um, we had like, all, you know, it, we were told it was a nine month deployment, but the <laughs> the the reality has been is uh, actually over a year by the time we get back home. So we we will have been away from home for a little over a year. So this nine months in country plus all the extra train up and all that shit like that. So, but just security, essentially. You guys getting banged up or what's, you know, how active is the zone you guys are working? Um, Afghanistan for the most part, unless you're like, you know, a spook or something like that is, is pretty, pretty quiet, you know, with the Taliban, especially with the peace talks and all that before they signed their quote unquote peace agreement. Um, you know, the Taliban, you know, you, you didn't really read much or hear much on the news about American soldiers getting killed and all that stuff. There were some incidents here and there, and some of them happened in our area, but, um, you know, nothing, uh, nothing crazy. It's not like these stories that we hear other guys tell about them getting hit every day, every other day, and all that stuff like that. So, which I guess is a good thing, right? You know? Yeah, so your, your halfway point was like March 15th, right? Or something, something there about, I think, and and uh, uh, definitely looking forward to a speedy sort of wrap up and redeployment for you. What are you doing there, like, to make the time go by to cope with sort of all the stressors that you have? Like, now you're just stuck, right? Yep, pretty much. Um, drugs and alcohol. Kidding, kidding. Um, no, man, just, just working out. Uh, playing games, just studying medical stuff. I mean, uh, one of the SFAB medics was uh, was really fortunate to meet him at JRTC. And then he was here for a little bit. Um, and so I would go over, you know, he was like an E6 and he was giving me all this, you know, information that like senior, senior line medics and all that stuff know. So I had an access to a plethora of info. I was just studying stuff on PT and, and all that stuff. So, um, trying to make sure I don't come back a shittier medic than I am or anything like that. <laughs> so just a little bit of studying here and there, working out, hanging out with the boys, playing games. And that's, that's about it. Yeah. I see a, I see a Catan board every once in a while appearing some of your social media yeah. postings, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Those get real heated, real heated. So what does your transition process look like in reverse? You mentioned like, are, do you still have a slot as a medic somewhere or are you infantry for life now or what? Nope. Uh, 68 Whiskey is now uh, my secondary MOS. Um, so when we go, when we're done with this, I go back to Charlie Troop, go back to being uh, 11 Bravo. But I had already talked to um, some of the, uh, God, I can't remember, uh, so the, the guys back back at Charlie Troop or whatever and say, hey, you know, can you send me to the research every other year so I can stay current on the 68 Whiskey? And he's like, yeah, it's really cheap. We got money for that. So um, I'll still, I guess, kind of be acting in a dual status role. 
a little bit. Not like I'm not going to be doc full time, but still have an aid bag and all that other stuff. So, you know, I mean, until someone tells me otherwise, I mean, I'm still still a doc. So. Yeah, I hear you. How about uh, just in terms of like career progression and your own training and education? What's next for you personally once you redeploy? Um, so right now I figured after being an E4 for I don't know how many years, I should probably try to be an E5. Because uh, when I was in the Air Force, I was getting ready to put on E5 and then transfer over. They said, hey, you need to be an E4. So I said, okay, fine. Of course, none of that, none of the work transfers branches. So starting from scratch. So um going to do DLC while I'm here, get that knocked out, do BLC when I go sometime when we go back and all that stuff. And then trying to get into the uh, 20th group down in uh, Indiana at some point, working toward that. It's like a... It's a go a little bit down the road, but I mean. What is the 20th group in Indiana? What is that? Oh, the, uh, um, the so the guard has a few uh, SF units. And so I'm oh. trying to get into trying to get into one of those. Gotcha. Okay. That is like the top tier goal right now at this point. Are you able to make some contacts while you're uh, deployed right now that'll kind of help you out when it comes to getting to SFAS? No, uh, no. <laughs> I wish I there's there's a couple of a uh, couple of civilians that we worked with that used to be in the uh, used to be in the military and they were all spooks so I was just kind of picking their brains for a little bit asking them questions like hey how did you get through this and asking them about the the life and how they dealt with family and and balance all that and all that stuff like that so I mean I have a better understanding of it now than when I had tried you know a few years prior so I mean, definitely got some good, some good intel from them on, on the whole process and all that stuff. So, how's your family prepared for and handled this deployment to this point? I feel like pretty well. Uh, my my wife ha- is handling it much better than anyone else, I think. But because I mean, we were dating when I was in Japan for you know most of the time I was there, so we had already done long distance before, so it wasn't anything new. Um, I think the rest of my family is kind of. Uh, I mean, they're okay for the most part, but, you know, mom's obviously missing her firstborn because I'm the golden child. I'm the firstborn. I am the most important one. So uh, she's, I think she's doing all right with it. Pops, he's fine. I think so. I don't think anyone's like over there crying buckets of tears and all that stuff like that. How are you keeping in touch with your wife and kid? Uh, This right here, just freaking FaceTime on the phone and all that stuff. I FaceTime Kara and then I hear dad in the background and just hear foot footsteps just run into the phone and her face takes up the entire screen. Hi. <laughs> so, so it's good. Just uh, still able to talk to them, see their face and all that stuff. And then, you know, Is that daily? no, not daily. It's maybe like once a week, something like that. How does that affect your ability to go, you know, one minute you're chatting with your kid and family on FaceTime and the next minute you're trying to go out and be somebody and be a little invincible. How's how's that play out in your head? Um, I, I guess uh, like being in the medical field, right? You know, you guys, you got, you guys definitely know you have that switch that you turn on and off, and it like happens like you can do it like that after you've been doing something for a while. In that aspect, you know, you turn. And, well, you're an MP, so I'm sure you have experience with it too. But like, you know, when it's game time, when it's time to go to work, you know, it's work, and then you can turn that switch off right away and talk to the family and all that stuff. So. It hasn't, for me, it hasn't been that big of an issue. Um, 
you know, it's just like going to work, you know, at the station and all that stuff. So I remember sometimes you know, our deployment, uh, at the time, if, if the, you know, I was married at the time, my first wife, if we'd had an argument or anything like that, I remember for the next several missions until her and I got to kind of kiss and make up, so to speak, I was a lunatic in zone. <laughs> you know, there was, I was not hanging back in the Humvees waiting to be called forward. I was up with the guys, you know, getting the snacks and doing all the stuff with them. So, you know, I don't know if, if maybe you're a little smarter than that. Maybe you're smarter as being a little older and mature. I was probably 21 at the time. So, um, whether it was a maturity issue, I don't know, is it, is it, if not you, are there guys in your unit to where if their home life's not going well, you can tell that they're just a little bit looser? Uh, I, I think that everyone here has been handling it pretty well. Like I've known most of these guys for at least, you know, three years. Um, some guys handle, everyone handles it differently. Um, I feel like everyone's coping with it pretty well. I think the first like two or three months were especially harder for some folks. Um, I mean, myself included, it was, you know, a little difficult, but um, I haven't seen anyone like really check out in that, in that regard. So it's like, and also like our team leaders and our squad leader, they're all, I mean, they're, they're fucking squared away. They've done, been here, been there, done that. And so like when we get to the truck, it's almost like a ritual when we're getting ready to go out and all that stuff. So that's kind of when everybody turns on and is kind of in the zone. So that's awesome. <laughs> That level of um, cohesiveness built into your units, you know, we try to, we try to get all generations, we're working to get it, we'll have some Vietnam vets coming on the show pretty soon, but like, you know, the, the next man up culture, the Vietnam War versus the cohesive unit you guys kind of get to deploy and redeploy with, I think there's right. just a, a big difference. And I, I like to hear that you guys, you've got some routines established to keep everybody together and support each other. That's awesome. Yeah, I recall about a 90 day sort of window for that battle rhythm and uh, a hope that folks can get oriented to their tasks, tasks and kind of get into a nice routine by that time during a, during a deployment. Uh, but the, the other thing I was kind of curious about, Charlie, is if you could contrast the relationships you have with the National Guard peers you have right now, having those longstanding relationships with maybe with some of the like more impermanent and rotating transient relationships you might have encountered on active duty like I never really thought about the difference there could you talk about that yeah um so when I was active luckily when I was there um like the core group of people that um that I, that I hung out with and all that stuff they were either just extending they kept so they could stay there or they they came with me like right around the same time so um a lot of the people that I worked with had had you know, I, I worked with them for almost the entire two years I was over there. So I didn't really have too much of that. It would be like a few onesies and twosies or like, hey, Silva's gone. He'll be gone and he's gone for two months. So uh, I was I was very fortunate that I didn't really have to experience that as much to that degree. Um, but I, I mean, there's there's definitely a difference with working with guys that you know and have worked with, been in the field with them multiple times and all that stuff like that. So you know, kind of the ins and outs and all that stuff. Like my roommate, Kirch, over here, I can predict. I know him better than he knows himself. He doesn't claim I do, but I do. Fuck you, too. It's a hard part of when you walk in as a medic. You come in and, you know, you might not know the guys that you're rolling downrange with or attaching mm -hmm. to your room, bedding into and things like that. And, like, getting to know who, who's who got what skills, who you can rely on, things like that. I remember as a medic coming into my company, that was that was hard to feel that out for a bit. You know, I like the fact that you guys get some more intimate relationships. That's cool. Yeah. Like, especially like coming to these guys when I was a brand new medic too. Um, 
that was kind of rough to break into that right away. So if we had deployed like then, like right when I got there, it would, I think it would be <laughs> very different. I got lucky with the unit I ended up going down range with probably like in our, in our six month workup, probably like three months into that, their senior medic was out. So I went and covered down for him for a field training exercise and got lucky at the time. The, the first sergeant asked me to put on a little bit of a training. We did something that was, um, that ended up coming off really well as far as teaching everybody how to, how to do it for what it was going to look like downrange. And so when I came back to that unit, um, I think it was just an easy fit. You know, I'd already knew, knew these guys a little bit, um, right. which gave me a bit of an advantage. Yeah, definitely. As opposed to just, hey guys, this is Doc. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, and Doc's not Doc's not given. It's earned. That title. Yeah, yeah I, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, definitely hard earned. <laughs> you know, Will and I were back in in like the mid two thousands. Um, what's the difference in either some of the medical equipment you have access to, and or, you know, how well equipped are you? Uh, you know, as far as rifles and and other stuff. Man, even just since I joined as a medic in the, in 2015 in the army, I mean, there's been a, a change in protocols in, in all this equipment and all this. I mean, not like mind boggling, but like, um, like doing, uh, doing blood transfusions in the field. Right. Like that's not something that I picked up until we started doing this deployment. Like, and, and even now, like I, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty, pretty competent medic, but there's obviously a lot I don't know. And there's stuff I don't know that I don't know and all that stuff. Right. So, um, when I heard that, I was like, wait, we're doing blood transfusions. I thought only the Rangers and the spooks do that stuff. It's crazy. And then start reading more about it. And then, you know, it's been done forever. So getting hands on with that was just freaking crazy. And then we practiced doing that stuff to make sure it worked and we knew what we were doing. Um, and like the tourniquets now, like they still have the cat twos and all that stuff, but they were trying to phase the soft T's in soft T wides. And I don't know anyone who uses them just because. I don't know. You kind of, you know, you, you keep doing doing what you know if it works, right? So, um, and like uh, the protocols have changed too, right? So we're like we're not pumping, you know, giving normal saline to people anymore. We're not, you know, you know, for for trauma and all that stuff like that. Um, and and just kind of seeing that, even just in my five years, is has been been kind of crazy how how it transitions from hey, you give hextend all the time to no more Hextend, really, unless you absolutely need to, right? So it's like, this used to be the save, like, save all drug, and now all of a sudden now it's don't do it unless you need to. Um, so, I mean, I guess just stuff like that has been been kind of weird, kind of crazy to see. Yeah, I think they oh. uh, historically used to think blood volume was the thing, and, and instead now I think they're looking at concentrations of platelet counts and hematocrits and things like that. So it's just a, a different look at it, keeping the quality of the blood up as opposed to the quantity of the blood up. Yep. So I got to ask, as the non-medic person, on my last deployment, we had this yellow um, foam-looking thing. It, it was almost like a, it was like a sheet of paper, but it was foam. And so if you had like a deep wound where you were losing a lot of blood, you could put that on there and it would clot to the skin or the, you know, whatever. Do they still have that? Is it still a thing? Yellow, I have not seen any yellow foam. Will, thing. you were nodding. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that reminds me of like uh, just the hemostatic dressing. A lot of them were made out of like chita sand, which I'm pretty sure is a protein that comes from uh, like shellfish. Shellfish? Yeah, yeah I, think so that's, I think that's what I'm talking about. Kite, think, kite yeah. is, it's a chitosan dressing. Yeah, so what, what happens when you uh, – so the nerdy folks who like study this sort of thing at the molecular level – 
they found these proteins in shellfish uh, exteriors, like crustaceans, shells, that when they encounter liquid, they harden or have this really like exothermic, like really energy intensive output uh, reaction. So um, they use these bonds, either the heat produced by that reaction or like the hardening effect to stop really extreme bleeding. But it's kind of like a double-edged sword, you know, there's trade-offs here because like you're either causing chemical burns or this like, like two-part epoxy sort of bond you know, uh, when you're using that, but you're also potentially preventing life-threatening bleeding. So there's been some really neat stuff. And yeah, I'd love to geek out a little more about, about the, you know, different sorts of chemical things and, and whatnot. But um, I don't know, Adam, what are your thoughts? Well, the, you talked you talk about two different products there. The first one that Karen brought up was that chitosan dressing. It, it kind of looked like a Pop-Tart and you could cut it to shape it to whatever you need, but you also needed to figure out how to access the artery. You also needed to make sure that you had the ability to clamp it or do something to hold it in place as you folded that foam over to actually get it to work. It was a great idea, but in the field, it was really hard to actually use successfully. Um, and then the product, Will, that you mentioned was uh, Quick Clot. Quick Clot is still used. Uh, it's not a great mm-hmm. product. It's basically like jam it full of as much dressing as you can rip all that shit out and pour as much of this stuff in there with as many pair of gloves on as you can get on. Because like you said, it gets super hot and it gets super hot fast, but the challenge that if, you know, basically what you're doing is you're, you're putting your priorities ahead of the surgeons because the surgeons got a lot of work to do to clean that mess up to even get to what they're doing. But when it comes to absolute life-saving measures, it's an awesome, awesome product that, that, you know, I couldn't be more excited about. And I'd be curious, Chuck, you know, these are some of the things that were kind of hot items in the mid two thousands. Are you guys still using chitosan dressings or quick clot or what's, what's made the, nope. new, the new thing? Um, so now we just, uh, there's hemostatic dressings that we have. So we don't have, like, I still have training quick clot, that, all that stuff, but we just have the hemostatic dressings and all that. Uh, so we don't mess around with that anymore and all that stuff, but it's still, you know, the same thing, get to the artery, find it, clean it away. Okay. That's where it's bleeding. Okay. And then stuff, 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 all that. Um, another thing when I learned at BCT3 too, was really that, for some, I don't know why it blew my mind, but it did um, that uh, putting on two tourniquets on the lower limbs now instead of just one. And that, you know, it, for, the thought had never really occurred to me, like why that would be a good thing to do, right? Um, and then kind of explain the science behind it and all that stuff like that. So that was new. There was even a few things that I was like, okay, I didn't know you're supposed to do that, whatever. Or like, I didn't know that that was brand new. Um, so it was, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was seeing quick clot be phased out because even when I went through my 60-day whiskey training, they still were kind of using quick clot a little bit and they were talking about it anyways and all that stuff. So, but no, just hemostatic dressings, no more yellow Pop-Tarts. So it's I don't know clot. what hemostatic dressing is. Can you explain oh, that a little bit more? Uh, hemostatic dressing is basically, um, it's, it's, it's like, it's like fo- rolled up gauze or not rolled up gauze, like folded up gauze in squares. And it has a blue line on it. So when you stick it inside somebody, x-ray can see it. So they can be like, all right, I know it's there. So it's not going to you know, accidentally leave it in. But it has a clotting agent on it, which basically uh, basically spe- speeds up that clotting factor and all that stuff. So if you take it out, right, and expose it to like blood or anything, it's going to start like that. So a lot of times, right, you get the package, rip it out, stick it right, right here by your shirt, get it and start tucking it in. So that way, as soon as it interacts with the blood, then it's like, all right, I need to stop this stuff right now. So, and then just kind of helps out with that. And I, you wow. mentioned like how you prep it and where you decide to hang it. Like that's, that's the part where the, the detail 
as a medic comes into play. Like there's little things I would have my medics do outside of the way that they'd prep some of their bleeding kits is that you'd take and you'd take some athletic tape and you'd put it on the end of each dressing and then make a small clip with some scissors or shears so that when your hands are, are bloody and you've got gloves on, it's hard to grip any plastic, right? Because blood's yep. basic. It's a very slippery, slippery substance. And at least you can get a hold on it and rip your dressings open. Otherwise, you're wiping your hands all over yourself. It's just a mess. And like the orders of operations and how you choose to go about something really does matter where you choose to keep your shears so you can even expose and start working. Um, yep. you know, where you keep your curlix rolls or any type of hemostatic dressing. Uh, hemostatic dressing is probably pretty late in the game, but like right away, how do you at least, how do you get your situation where you can start to do some work before you actually go with your final, you know, your final nail in the coffin with the hemostatic dressing? And we didn't have those. Those would have been really cool because I think, you know, half the times I just encourage my medics to like, don't use the shiny shit, go with what works, like get as much curlix, push as much into that person's body until you see the yep you know, until you can't stuff any more in there and then take a, an ACE wrap and wrap that motherfucker as tight as you can. And if you see blood come through the ACE wrap, tourniquet time. Yep. Um, or if you, you know, you start, the leg gets, the leg feels 20 pounds heavier, you know, there's blood in there and that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> and it's simple shit like that, but it's the way you choose to order your aid bag, the way you choose to set it up strategically. And that like, mm-hmm. you'd be surprised even the most, the best medic within 15 minutes, how you can take a look over your shoulder and you're like, how did that fucking bag of popcorn explode everywhere? You know? And like, you got to clean all your shit up and roll soon. Um, yeah. Cause you know, you're not just going to send them away and stand there and wait for the next truck to come by and pick you up. You know, you got to get in the vehicle too. So like all these things do matter. And, and I'd be curious, Chuck, maybe elaborate a bit on some of the things you've done to make your aid bag a little bit more efficient over the years. Oh, I have gone through, I think a million and one ways that my aid bag is set up. I think like maybe a little bit of the OCD kicks in or whatever, but um, like when I first got, when I first got uh, to, to my unit, right, I was like, all right, cool. I want all this in here, right? And I bought a Stomp 2 Blackhawk bag, right? This thing is freaking, like, fucking huge, right? And I stuffed it full of stuff, which was my first mistake, obviously, right? So I'm carrying, like, 50, 40 to 50 pounds worth of medical stuff that I don't need. And, um, and so just over the years, kind of prioritizing, hey, what do I need? Do I, I need this out up front? And the aid bags that we have now, these mystery ranch bags are, are the amazing. Um, I think they have pads on the back too, which makes it nicer. But, um, um, yeah, I've uh, gotten a lot better at making sure like one pouch, like outside or like the top flap is everything that I need. Like basically it's like a CLS bag, right? Everything that I can just need to stabilize this guy right here. So theoretically, I'm not going to have to go into my bag to take anything out, right? Unless, oh shit, this guy is circling the drain or something like that. Or I need like any advanced interventions. So I played around with that a lot. I still do it even now, like when we're here, like we go on a mission or something like that. And like just something randomly pops in my head, like maybe I should put that somewhere else. Um, but I mean, I've reworked it a million and one times and all that stuff like that. So um, how much do you think that, uh, that your A bag weighs now? Or what range uh, do you like to keep it at? Probably like between, like vary it based on the mission set as well, but like maybe between 30 and 40 pounds, you know, 40 at the absolute, like if we're, if we're rolling on trucks and I don't have to carry that like 10 miles, yeah, I'll do like 40 pounds. If I know that we're doing like a dismounted movement, then um, lighter side. <laughs> and then Great. I have all- you go ahead and get some of the, you know, you get four liters of fluid that's no longer sitting around in your bag either. You lose some weight there, you save some weight, and then you also get some space back. Yep. Well, and then the cool thing too about um, 
like, I guess a little selfish thing is that like, since we're not pumping people full of fluids anymore, right. Um, that I, I don't have to carry four liters of saline in my bag. I don't have to carry LR in my bag. I don't have to carry all that. I basically just need blood and plasma light and maybe some Hextend, you know, like just depending on what I'm feeling like. And, and um, I carry a little dangler pouch too on my, on my kit. So I have, it's like another CLS bag there. And I mean, it's just kind of figuring out little ways to either distribute the weight or cut it down. So I've gotten, I feel like I've gotten pretty, pretty good at doing that later my time yeah i gotta say like a 40 pound a bag to me sounds uh like flirting with disaster because you know for us we didn't you know i mean things were pretty dynamic and we didn't necessarily know you know what sort of support we'd have and if we'd be bringing our vehicles as things evolve so uh like i probably kept my a bag like under like between like 25 and 32 pounds and just put like tons of uh, CLS bags on all our vehicles that were all standardized across, you know, across the platoon, basically. But one thing that we had that, um, that I didn't, I didn't understand its value until we had to use them were the fire blankets, like the gel. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're familiar with that, like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, you know, if you guys would be required to have those now, but they certainly came in handy when we kind of, when things like really went poorly for us, you know, and having, we're having to like recover folks. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just funny how, how the different types of injuries that folks will get kind of drives, you know, the army has the center for army lessons learned and, and they do a lot of like process improvement and adjust what's being pushed out in terms of supplies to guys like us mm -hmm. through their big data sort of evaluations of all these different patients that come back, which is super interesting to me, but um, you know, here we are having diverse experiences on the other end of that whole process, you know? Right. But yeah, hey, uh, I, I wanted to share with kind of Adam and Karen, like we met through rugby, which has been a huge part of my life. And it sounds like it was a big highlight of your time in Japan. Like, I'd love to hear more about your international, <laughs> air quotes, international rugby experience. And then, uh, Maybe we could talk about a little about the, the local club, too. Ah, yes, the local Wisconsin Rugby Club. Fuck Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Um, so I, I like, kind of stumbled into rugby in Japan or whatever. Um, like, played a little bit in high school, but didn't really grasp any concepts. It was basically just run. So I was like, all right, I can do that. So when I got to Japan, it was a little bit more intricate, learned a little bit more. Um, also, looking back now, very rudimentary like didn't know how to run a line or anything like that. So um, we played with like these New Zealand guys, against these New Zealand guys who were built like tanks. Like imagine Jonah Lomu, right, running at you, or Duke built like him, and then you're 180 pounds trying to tackle him in open field, right? So, but I mean, it was, it was always a good time. Uh, played with some Aussies, some, some other expats and all that stuff. So kind of like the rugby culture was introduced to me there, especially like the going out drinking, the rugby songs, you know, drinking from the boot, all that stuff like that. So that, I was like, all right, this is awesome. I'm going to keep doing this. And then when I left active, you know, that TAPS class, you know, they all, you know, send everybody through when they leave. I was like, this is bullshit. Like, I'm fine. I'm not going to have an issue readjusting to normal life. I'll be okay. And then sure enough, I get back and I'm like, I have a problem adjusting to normal life. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I was, I had looked up, I was like, hey, uh, uh, I called a, uh, 
think I emailed Phil or hit him up Facebook or something like that. One of the guys for the Wisconsin Rugby Club. And I was like, hey, I'm coming back from active. I really want to play rugby. And then he just kind of, you know, Phil response, gave me a place, time, and all that stuff. We'd love to have you. So uh, show up. And I'm like, this is awesome. This feels like uh, this feels like being back in the military again. Cool. And just kind of kept coming back. So especially the drinking aspect of it. Yeah, there's a there's a huge social component along with the sport, you know. And I was fortunate to sort of find the same rugby community when I transitioned off of active duty and started uh, college at Whitewater. I signed up for like we went to the org fair where every club or sport or organization from fraternities to politically active groups, uh, they host like a tabling event. And I signed up for just like just about everything. And then um, sure. I'd written my email address on the rugby contact sheet, like too sloppily. So it was very fortunate that like that following weekend, I think it was a Sunday late morning. I was at the local Walmart a little too hungover for public consumption. I like knocked a bunch of light bulbs off the shelf because I wanted to purchase some, but instead I broke them there. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, now I need to find an associate to find a broom to clean up this mess, you know? So, but the president of the Whitewater Rugby Club came around the corner. He's like, hey guy, I recognize you. You still thinking about coming to practice? I'm like, what are you talking about? I have a light bulb related emergency on my hands right now. He's like, yeah, practice on Tuesday. And I'm like, great, man. I'll see you there. But I was fortunate that I went because I ended up getting super involved in, uh, and I didn't go to any of the other things that I signed up for. I was like, no, <laughs> bro, this is just fine. This is this is perfect. So that'll yeah. do, big. That'll do. Yeah, I'm similar. I got exposed to uh, was I got exposed to Australian rules football while I was still on active duty, Oof. and so then like uh, the moment I got out, I think the next weekend I was already at a training with the local club down in Los Angeles, and you know you talk about it felt like you were back in the military again, Chuck. That you know, it kind of gives you that camaraderie, that brotherhood, that tribe. Like I felt the same way. And the types of people that are attracted at rugby, Aussie rules and things like that, they're not the dudes who are obsessed with beer league softball in their thirties. Like it's yeah. just a different mindset of a bunch of people who are a little bit curious about it. They're, they're willing to go suck at something and fail at it completely and own it. And, mm-hmm. you know, Will mentioned the social aspect of it. They also are going to, you know, work hard and play hard and right. the transition to military life. I think that, you know, many times that's what saved my life throughout the years is being able to go get a game on a weekend or anything like that, or just being, being able to be around the sport or, or the people. I hear you. Yeah. That's, that's what I was saying is like, you know, fast forward about six years from me discovering the rugby community to like kind of going through some, you know, intense struggles, like interpersonally people weren't, I wasn't able to make people understand where I was coming from and I was expressing myself poorly. Uh, mm-hmm. But fortunately, like I said, like I had already met Charlie and he, he kind of had a foot in both camps, you know, he was a military guy uh, and a, and a rugby guy that I could relate to. So I brought, I was like, Hey man, you know, we went out on a, a pretty long ruck on one of the coldest days of like 2017 or something. And we froze. I was like bleeding through my boots. Cause I insisted on wearing RFI issue boots. Uh, but he was able to like help me navigate some, some of those challenges. I'm like, man, I just like, there's this cultural thing that I just can't, you know, wrap my head around. So he was Charlie, you know, I appreciate you coming on and sharing a bunch of your story, but I also appreciate, you know, the, you being a resource to me uh, in the last few years as we, you know, occupy space out here. 
Yeah, of course, man. No problem. I mean, like, you know, go, going to the WRC, you know, I was like expecting, um, I was expecting like, you know, no, no military aspect of it. And then of course, you know, there's a few dudes on the team who either were in the military or, you know, were in the guard or something like that, or were still in the guard. So I was like, this is fucking perfect. And then Will, you're like, oh yeah, I was in the, the army. I was in the 105th. I was like, you, and you were a medic? Like, holy shit. Did we just become best friends? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. I'm like, this dude's in my platoon. I'm like, this whole, you're just keeping my spot warm. You know what I mean? It's just like, here. <laughs> but yeah, I just, uh, it's really cool. And, and the fact that there are other vets around there and like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just, just folks that are able to find and make those connections, like I, that's super meaningful and adds a lot to both communities. So for those of you who are looking for something to do, Aussie rules football, rugby, like it's fun, it's high stakes, it'll keep you fit. There's a there's a social group there. And uh, weirdly, I gotta say like, for as meat headed and beer drinking, you know, goofball-y, uh, as for as, you know, goofy as that, as rugby players can be, it's a smart, sensitive, yeah. caring community too. Like a lot of yeah. grad school degrees, a lot of like successful, you know, businessmen and women. Uh, so there, there are connections to be made there. Yeah, it's, it was crazy that because I, I like played amateur football for a little bit and uh, I was trying to play both at the same time when I initially came back and then I said, fuck football, I'm just going to play rugby. And the cultural difference between the two was like night and day. And then, like like you said, well, there's dudes who are leaps and bounds smarter than your average person, yet they're beating the shit out of each other three days a week. It's like, this doesn't add up, but I like it. <laughs> right. Yeah. One thing, one thing that's uh, – I got into through rugby and kind of through you is going to these different like cultural sorts of outings. And um, you'll have to sort of help me flesh out the story, but I recall uh, heading down to a local establishment and you were doing some spoken word or, or mm-hmm. can you tell me more about that or remind me? Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a spot right off the square called Jenna's Jenna's lounge. Um, awesome place. And I, I don't know. I, I, well, it was from Jake, actually. Uh, Jake, Jake Winkler was, uh, he, had, he had known that I was like in a spoken word and all that stuff. And I used to do it a lot. And he said, hey, I'm competing for, I'm in this competition or whatever for this, like the national team. And he was like, you don't, you don't want to come watch? I was like, yeah, I'll come watch. And went there and watched, had a great time. And then talked to the guy like, hey, you guys do open mics and got the contact info and then kind of let me know. So, and then I was like, all right. And at that point I hadn't like, I hadn't like been on a stage in fucking years, really. Like I had done like maybe a few, like done a few shows or like here and there after, you know, I joined the military, but I never hadn't like fully done it, like committed as opposed to like, I'm just home on leave. I'm going to have some fucking beers and go, go do a song. Let's go. Right. So it was, uh, it was really interesting, but um, yeah, I mean, it was great to actually go back up there and, and read something that I had written and all that stuff like that, and then kind of keep coming back. So, I, and then also, oddly enough, saw a lot of rugby people there multiple times too. So, can I, you I explain one. more so what the spoken word is? Is that like just you know like writing, just writing something and reading it in front of an audience? Is that basically what it is? Yeah, so, like spoken word. So, like a lot of times when people hear it, they assume it's like this fucking. 1960s or like these these people who are speaking like this and with a fucking jazz band in the background or some shit like that right and 
Now, granted, there are some stuff that is like that, right? But, um, I mean, it's just basically delivering whatever the fuck you want to say and doing it. You can just plain come out and say it, right? Or um, kind of storytelling, I guess. And it's doing it through, you know, any literary form, right? Like metaphors, similes, all this other stuff. Like, I mean, there are people who are really good at it. There are people who aren't so good at it. But the whole point of it is that you're coming up on stage, you're sharing something that you want to, the whole world to hear it. And it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, and it's, it's always, every time that I've done a show or been to an open mic or something, it's the community is amazing. It's always very open and welcoming. I've heard um, a lot of very terrible stories told very beautifully. And it's, oh. it's crazy. It's how, how vulnerable people will make themselves on stage, right? But then you try to talk to them after like, hey, you did a really good job. And they are a com complete introvert. And, but they just told you that this terrible, these terrible events transpired on stage in front of everybody. Everybody was listening. And you try to say, "Hey, how you doing?" Yeah. Hey. So it's it's crazy sometimes how it is. But that's fascinating. Yeah, like Def Jam Poetry <laughs> Slam. That's a that's a good way to get an idea of what spoken word is on the YouTubers. Yeah, I find that. Awesome. Really interesting, and the idea of like having multiple multiple kind of personae to deal with that vulnerability and to you know to perform right. But that's really neat. It's like clear that you're a guy with a number of eclectic sort of interests, and you get involved in things. And you know, I think that there's a lesson there uh, about building a rich life and not being afraid to fail. You know, uh, finding new communities and trying new things. And putting yourself out there so i think that you've done a good job leading by example in that capacity well thank you i appreciate you are there any organizations out there that you've come across along the way that you know you, you think other people should be aware of you know it sounds like the the poetry slam and stuff like that and spoken word is an awesome outlet the rugby club is there anything that's maybe a little more veteran centric that you've come across that's been helpful oh it's funny you say that uh this great organization called team rwb that will <laughs> Will had been uh, had been trying to get me to come to these these events and meet these people for the longest time, and um, honestly, like I was a little intimidated at first, right? Because it's uh, you know, it's like hey, all these other people who I'm sure have you know these combat deployments, these awesome stories, right? I, like for some reason I was like, hey, I feel like these people deserve to be here and all that stuff. But really, after talking to the people, even the ones that had that, even the ones that didn't have these you know combat stories and all that. It was just, it was essentially, you know, what the rugby club was, right? It was a support group. It was people to talk to who understand where you're coming from to a degree. So I've been to a few Team, R team RWB uh, events, met met some of the people there. I mean, it's, it's definitely helped for sure. Like uh, realizing that you're not the only vet out there who may or may not feel lost or may not feel a little kind of out there. So, um, but I mean, other than that, though, I mean, those are – really the main ones, the ones that we've already touched on. Um, I've just been fortunate to fall into those groups and I didn't have to keep searching, like, you know, go to a, a fair and fill out a bunch of forms on stuff. I just happened to fall into them just luckily right away. So, and it fit. So very fortunate. And for what I know about team at RWB, it's like essentially you give them like a dollar, they send you the shirt that you can wear and it's a nice shirt. They've developed a, a mobile app for cell phones that like you can track all the things that are, you know, all the comings and goings of what's happening in your area. And I think that they're, it's just really cool that it's so, it's 
so veteran focused and so progressive and, and willing right. to update and adapt. And uh, it's a cool organization. Glad you got to be a part of it. Yeah, there's a group uh, I, I'm on this uh, message group that will added me on uh, a bunch of them go rucking very frequently. And unfortunately, I cannot ruck with them at this moment. <laughs> but keep following along and I'm like, awesome. I'm like, I get to ruck with people when I get back. So, cause a lot of times when I was getting ready, like to go to um, SFRE and all that stuff, I would be rucking like six, eight miles by myself. Maybe somebody would come every now and then, but knowing that there's a group of people that go out and do that, like that's awesome. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. I definitely appreciate you guys kind of plugging an organization that I'm involved in, but uh, you know, to speak to some of the, barriers that exist for folks that might be looking to get involved it's like nobody is trying to compare scars nobody's going to tell you your story isn't good enough like i tell you like it's the more the merrier almost regardless of of what you're looking at has been my experience like you know moving around the local community and i'm interested in getting more involved with things like the combat veteran motorcycle riders stuff like that you know i think it'd be great to like just as a project, pick up a fixer upper and sort of dab a toe into, into all these other things that are going on. And really like, I can't imagine not enjoying a warm reception, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, expressing that interest and coming from the background, you know, the shared veteran background that so many of us do, you have. Right. But yeah, Charlie, you're, you're a, you're a physically active guy. You're staying busy rucking mm-hmm. staying busy in the gym staying busy studying doing rugby when you can mm-hmm. uh sounds like you're involved in art in the spoken word stuff that covers a lot of bases in terms of coping strategies like what else what other tools do you use what what other what advice would you have for people who are who are looking to get their mix right and what other tools do you can you recommend so there's a group uh, been a part of since like before the military called Higher Education Records. Uh, it's led by this uh, DJ Moses. He, he's out of Milwaukee and known me, you know, it comes back to that, you know, you make music and you, you like put all this stuff out there. So he's heard a lot of like very intimate things, right? You know, through a microphone and all that stuff like that. So, um, and we're still talking and he's still like working on sending me beats and all that stuff like that. So, um, I mean, it's been very fortunate that I'm able to cope through through art, right? And then the gym and all that stuff. Um, I mean, really, that's that's kind of been about it. Um, like, I think everyone has has their own ways to cope. Whether it's like the hermit back in Japan playing his Xbox for 18 hours a day or something like that, or you know, whatever. Um, so I think it just really depends on on the person. And, and Will, you you and I had had a conversation a few years ago that certain people are just genetically wired to handle certain things, right. To a certain degree. Right. And so I don't think that that it's a one size fits all. So it like, if people are looking for some way to cope with whatever they got going on or deployment, you know, this fucking COVID craziness going on. I mean, I think you just kind of, kind of got a shotgun it, you know, try to figure out what works, just keep doing it till you figure it out. So it's funny that you kind of mentioned that. Cause like, as I think of the whole story you've, you've shared with us, you know, that's kind of been it, you know, you try one thing, you're like, ah, this isn't me. You try another thing. You're like, all right, we're getting a little closer. This isn't it. You know, bouncing around to where it seems like you're getting pretty close. I can imagine once you catch your E5 and are actually able to, um, 
to make that jump at, at that Indiana group that I think you're getting pretty close to me, you know, being wholly settled and I hope you can get there. Are you going to make it 20, Charlie? Is that your plan? Yeah. How's that going to work? Like one day you'll just have to sit down and do the points for the reserve component and then fold in the active duty time or where you're just going to just figure out Like I haven't even thought about points getting out. Like I want to retire at 20. Like I'm going to, even if I'm not at 20, I'm going to keep doing this until I'm, until I'm done. If I'm at 19 years, I'm like, fuck it. I'm done. Like with the job and all that, you know, I feel like I have enough benefits and all that stuff, but like, this is, I mean, I'm doing this, you know, in the army because I actually enjoy my job and what I do. So like, cause especially when I, when I crossed over, I had to like pay back half of my bonus from the air guard, which was like 6,000 bucks right at the time I was poor as shit, I guess still poor, but re- relatively poor. But so like, I don't think I had a single, maybe like one or two people who were like, Hey, yeah. Hey, you go do that. Almost everyone was unanimous, unanimously against me doing it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm here forever, I guess. Forever. Forever. So Adam, like, uh, it sounds like there are a little bit of parallels between like Charlie's uh, flirting with military firefighter stuff, but then actually making it happen on the civilian side. Is it, Wondered if that's interesting to you at all, and if we could talk about a little, um, a little about my friend. Uh, her name's Yvonne. She's the Jefferson County Veteran Service Officer, and she set up uh, a foundation there, or like is moving towards it to try and help promote sort of veterans reintegration and recovery and that sort of thing. And one of her sort of strategic emphases is, is uh, targeting vets for recruitment into like volunteer fire departments and, and EMS services and things like that. Yeah. My initial thing when I came into the military right after nine 11, as I've shared was to be a firefighter. And then, um, you know, I kind of came into my path as a, as a medic and did the field medic part. And at that point I started to kind of mentally maybe move away and want to do more hospital based care. And so as I got out of the military, the goal at the time was to go to medical school. Um, and, I think I was sitting and I'd made it into a um, calculus-based physics course. And I got to the point to where I looked around and I'm just like, I, I shouldn't be in this room. I'm in the wrong room, man. I'm the only guy interested in the all-you-can-drink sangrias from 10 to midnight at the place down the street. <laughs> all these guys were, they were seriously, they were just taking Adderall and studying all the time. And I was like, I'm not going to compete with these guys. So I kind of had a little bit of like a come to Jesus moment where I was like, you know, maybe I'll just do PA school or something like that. And then, um, you know, for me, life got difficult and I kind of had to uh, scuttle all plans for a few years to kind of get, get everything back to where it needs to be. But then, you know, I'd learned enough and I took a whole look at my entire life and I was like, I'm going to quit trying to do all these other things that would maybe satisfy other people. And instead I want to pick a direction that maybe I'm most interested in. And that's where I came across the field of social work was just that like, you mean you show up every day and you're actually, your job is to help people, you know, um, you know, I grew up without a whole lot of money and stuff like that. And we grew up on a gravel road on welfare essentially. And um, the struggle to be able to use all these systems to get where now I've got a master's degree and used benefits in a good way to where like, how can I help other people help themselves in a, in a similar way up? And so I, I knew I was burnt out of the first response stuff that like after my deployment and doing all the combat medic stuff that I didn't really want to go in and, and keep doing that and like a local fire department or anything. Um, I'll let those guys have their glory and their fun. And I, 
much respect their service and, and the work that they do on a day to day. I think it's, you know, sometimes probably a greater grind than what deployment can be like. Um, but I just had to shift in a different direction that was going to be looking at me and the rest of my life uh, without just trying to scratch the ego. Yeah, I hear you. And I can really, I really appreciate a lot about what you said there. And a lot of it resonates with me too. It's like, well, one thing I'll tell you is like uh, for these, these volunteer fire service guys and Charlie, you have to weigh in with the professional side of the house. But when that pager goes off or whatever, it could just be a CO2 alarm or whichever, mm-hmm. or like a lift assist, you name it. But that adrenaline spike is real, you know? And every time, like I've just, I, all I've done in terms of firefighting, um, I've done a couple trainings, you know? And until, and, you know, we get together and go to class or whatever. And it takes me like, I'll get home at like 10 o'clock after a 35 minute ride home and I'll still need another two hours just to kind of wind down, just thinking about like flipping that switch and being, being on the fire ground or whatever, you know what I mean? So I certainly appreciate uh, balancing those needs as you kind of described Adam. And the only thing, the only other thing I would add is like, it, it is funny how you'll have one sort of picture of how things are going to go and then that falls apart and it falls apart in like the best possible way you know so like sometimes things fall apart so other things can fall together like now you've like this path that you wouldn't have even considered has been revealed to you and will make you will reward you over the long term you know better than maybe something else would have absolutely yeah i mean like getting burnt out too like back to what Adam was saying, like that's a, I mean, a lot of guys, you know, deal with that even at, at the department too, you know, it's, I mean, it's a, it, it, it sucks too. So, I mean, at least you, you know, realize that early on and right away. So you didn't try to go like, all right, I'm going to keep doing the same thing, even though I'm burnt the fuck out, I'm gonna keep doing it. And then you just spiral and then you just go down the drain. So, I mean, that's recognizing that right away is always a good thing. Yeah, it's been helpful. That's for sure that, that I was able to kind of figure it out. It was, it was tough though, to actually be able to make that decision to be able to, to be okay with failing at whatever, you, you know, when you start to tell everybody in your life and put it on social media and stuff, now you're accountable for that. That's the worst right. part about when you start to share your goals and like people knew what my goals were. It was pretty well known. And to be able to actually have to be able to come out and say, Nope, that's not working. I got to change this stuff up. Um, it, I expected more people to probably give me shit for not being able to go down that path as opposed to where the reality was everybody rallied behind me and it was pretty mm-hmm. cool. I mean, it even got to the point to where I was, you know, if I didn't get into graduate school, I was already in the process of selling all my shit to go and travel the world for two years to, to really then get to know myself and figure it out what I was supposed to do. Um, but that stupid graduate school let me in. <laughs> now we're here. Um, but then even accepting some of the changes that come that, that uh, you didn't plan on, like, I live in a house like in a kind of on the edge of town. We're thinking about buying a minivan, <laughs> like all yeah. these things I said I would never do, and they're happening. Yeah. It's like you know what? Yep. I'm just I'm letting it happen. Whatever happens, happens. I'm like I'm the one who's most sold on the minivan because I'm like, yeah, we could use it for camping. We could haul all kinds of stuff in it. Yeah, there you go. Crazy how <laughs> shit funny. changes, right? <laughs> it's but it's crazy how it changes, and and never forgetting how to be adaptable. Well, I mean. It's funny because at one point it's like you're becoming what you hate. Right. But at the other point, it's also fulfilling you every step of the way. And it took a big commitment, you know, to, 
to change what you would put out in the universe and to pivot and to apply to grad school and to get in and to actually do all those things because it's not, it's not all, it's not just as simple as like coming up with a different plan and eating a little bit of crow, which you didn't get in the first place to do that. You, you put in the work and found a whole different type of success on the other side, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Man, then you look at these guys who got out of high school, maybe, and just more smartly were prepared or however they got there, but like got into some of those trade careers to where at 25 years old, you know, they're already making 75 grand a year. And, you know, I'm, was at the time like 30 years old and I'm borrowing money from the government again. And it's like, Jesus, man, I got to put the shovel down. I'm still digging and digging a hole here. It's nice to finally get to where you're on the side to where um, you feel like you're catching up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Was it Joe Rogan? Like there's this podcast Joe Rogan had and he said is like, people keep expecting this, uh, this utopia, right? And like the, like the sun's going to set and then you're going to be coast off and be set for life and that like no one ever reaches that utopia so i think like that's it because then you know soon you're gonna have to do do something again change again like you're gonna be set and then it's gonna there's gonna be a whole nother change and all that stuff so yeah like you said like being adaptable is extremely important but also realizing at least especially now that i've gotten a, a little bit older uh realizing to kind of enjoy the ride too as opposed to just keep trying to climb right just yeah. kind of enjoy the sights too while you're doing it so yeah, definitely. You mentioned like, st- you know, stop feeling like you have to climb and stop feeling like you have to grind mm-hmm. and instead just in, in, go enjoy your life. Yep. All the know. process. Yes, for sure. So should we get some rapid fire questions going and get out of here? Absolutely. Uh, there's like six. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. What's your, what's your favorite MRE? Ooh, cheese tortellini. Okay. It's got Reese's Pieces in it. Yeah, amazing. And that's funny when you think of the MREs, you start to learn what all accessories kind of come in each of one. Mm-hmm. Do you get like a jalapeno cheddar or anything like that? Then you'll start to people make fun of you for the MRE choice. And you're like, no, nah, man, there's way more yep. to going on in my head right now. Exactly. I got plans. What's, what's the grossest thing you ate? Oh, um, the grossest thing I ate. Ugh, it was in the back of a minivan. No, I'm kidding. Um, Let's see. Got awkward. <laughs> Say a person's name. What happened what? to you? Yeah, uh, it was probably a pound cake that fell in the mud. I'm not muddy pound not cake. Fell in the mud, and I was like, "I'm hungry. Fuck it. This has been like a ten click movement. Fuck it." I was fully expecting okay. some Tokyo story where you ate some street food. No, no. I learned. Learned by watching somebody else vomit. I learned. <laughs> Mark of a smart oh. person learning from other people's mistakes. <laughs> what is the most tired moment that you can remember from your time in the military? The most tired moment that I can remember. Um, mm-hmm. Shit. I guess uh, right off the bat, just the first thing that pops is that 72 hours of sewing bags. Of sewing. <laughs> Yeah, like there are other, t- I guess like, I guess there's physical and being mentally tired, but like I was just, just, just gone. I had been up, was just doing the same shit over and over again. And I like had fallen asleep sewing and like hit my finger or something like that. So. Do you feel like uh, you sympathize with people that work in sweatshops now? Absolutely. I will never buy anything from Nike again. Okay. Did we miss any good um, basic or deployment stories? 
Uh, deployment stories. Let's see, it's a good one. Um, was in the gym today with a buddy. We were doing a workout, and he split a med ball in half somehow. Found a way to do that. Nice. Um, also, uh, got a flashlight delivered here, and my roommate had said he's been pouring her out to everyone else in the squad. I still don't know if it's true or not, so I've been hiding her. What's he charging rent for on that? I don't know. He won't tell me. But you you own it, and you admit that it's yours? Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> dude, dude my, my hands are so callous now, it's like it's like sandpaper. It's terrible. Yeah. You have been lifting pretty hard. I do. I can't vouch for. I can't vouch for your commitment to the gym. So I didn't realize this was a. This was a consequence of that. But more power to you, brother. It's a price I got to pay for my country. Goodness, we got our first uh, manufacturers and and distributors and retailers of Fleshlight. If you're listening, we got our, yes, our first work. sponsorship <laughs> opportunity. We got our first confirmed, uh, <laughs> you know, unit in the world. <laughs> I'd rather that than some of the haphazard shit privates would try, like microwaving a banana peel or something. Oh, what so the fuck? Are you serious? I have so many questions that I'm scared to ask right now because it's I really am like where our friendship is at, Charlie. And I just don't <laughs> want to like, I don't want to learn too much. You know what I mean? Like, That's good. Then let's just not ask anymore. We're good. We're good. <laughs> okay. Uh, final question. And this pertains more so to people that are, you know, back here in the States, but what have you spent the most time doing um, since you've been on quote unquote quarantine or the shelter in place kind of deal? Uh, would it be playing with your flashlight? No, that 30, 30 seconds doesn't really last that long. So, um, 30 seconds is 30 seconds. Yep. 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess, uh, either like lifting or just playing games, you know, that's it. So I'll go to the gym like once or twice a day, depending on how I'm feeling or sit here and zone out, just play games. I, I mean, that's about it. Like the, the whole quarantine hasn't, hasn't affected us a crazy amount, but it has enough, I guess, make things even dumber. I think so. We're getting close to a breaking point where people are going to start to do some stupid shit to survive the boredom. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. I'm excited to hear those stories. Well, I can tell you that my peer group is drinking heavily, and I'm kind of worried, and I'm feeling a little pressured to join in. Uh, but fortunately, I've been pretty abstemious recently That's anyway. Good. That's good. It's hard to say no. <laughs> like people resort really to hard. just time warping. They want to time warp. And so like, you know, I encourage folks, all the parks are still open. You know, it's not like Chuck, you're not going to be able to take your happy ass and go for a walk outside unless you want to do a full bird call. Um, <laughs> but, you know, investing yourself in the gym and like, you know, using this opportunity as a, as a way to come out on the other side better. You know, there's some people bitching that unemployment benefits are going to be too good. Yeah, whatever. Let them go buy some shit and stimulate the economy. Why can't people come out of this and be in a better position and and, and be all right? That's my thinking on it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Adam. It's just like that, that scarcity aspect is just something else. And I think a lot of things arise from that, those irrational fears. Charlie, what were you saying? I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's – I just – terrible how people want other people to be to feel shitty and live horribly it's like why i think it's for some people it's just like human nature hey i'm doing very bad i want you to do bad too i don't want you to be doing well it's like why fuck you well said yeah well said very well put yep yeah i'm inclined to agree man 
This 11 Bravo spot is affecting my vocabulary. I promise yeah. I speak real good. Sorry, Simple Jack. Yeah, me talk uh, pretty one day, huh? You make me happy. I, I, went, I had like a four-month case of the Rogers, you know? Like I was just oh. – didn't matter who I was talking to. It was just, hey, girlfriend, Roger. Like my mom's like, hey, how are those cookies? You enjoy them? Roger, you know? Like, oh, my God. It's fine. It's fine, man. But I do hope that I, – I do hope that, you know, whatever you have left I, – I got my calendar over here, so I, I got dates circled. But uh, I hope the remainder of your deployment – zips on by and that you're able to continue staying in touch, staying well, staying healthy, staying safe, taking care of your guys. And I'm looking forward to, you know, getting in some more rucks, um, playing some rugby and, and, you know, you and Rachel, uh, you're invited to chicken lips or chicken licks when, when she gets back, and then we'll do the whole, we'll do the whole, uh, you know, redeployment special from, from behind the, <laughs> Word. Barrel, whichever. I would say I need a lot of beers, but I think maybe half a beer would send me over the edge at this point right now. Oh, wow. Cheers. I'm down. Yeah, I'm struggling. I drank a near beer just to remember the taste of beer. Huh. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I was like, had all the bad effects of alcohol, you know, except for the hangover, you know, without the fun part of being able to disassociate. <laughs> I was like, fuck. I appreciate you joining us. I don't have anything else for you, uh, but thanks again for sharing. I'm, I feel like done some good here. And like I said, hurry, hurry your ass back and, uh, oh, yeah. you know, miss you, homie. Yeah, I miss you too, man. I, yeah, I appreciate y'all listening and all that stuff and happy I could come share my story. And hopefully it enriches someone's life or makes them laugh and say that fuck. <laughs> it's been awesome to get to know you man um i hope once everything's you know you guys can spool back up you guys run tight missions i hope you guys are successful um you know get it done get everybody home in the best shape you can and and it'll be nice to see once you get back stateside oh yeah look forward to it drinks on courage when we get back that's my room drinks on courage fight or die fight or die baby